Hashem Naseh V'Natzliach, Shiur Torah, very good to be in Miami, we're starting a little late, sorry about that, some interesting traffic beforehand, um, but Baruch uh, Hashem, we have another Shiur, it's um, number 106 in the Musar Pekavot series, um, it's a, really this next Mishnah is a continuation of uh, of last night's Mishnah, just delving into the details um, of some of the things that were discussed in last night's Mishnah. Uh, but as you can see from the previous Shulim, the uh, the Mishnayot have no end, really. You could really discuss just one Mishnah forever. It all depends on how deep you want to go. Uh, Based on the time and based on uh, the the, uh, the magnitude of this Mishnah, I think it may require more than one shiur, but we'll see. Bezat Hashem. Uh, but uh, the topics are getting more difficult because we're starting to see that a lot of the things are relevant to us directly. You know, in the beginning of the series, it was a lot of general things, a lot of general advice, a lot of general information. Moshe Rabbeinu kibel Torah misinai. So Moshe Rabbeinu got Torah. What does it mean to us? The transfer of the, of the Torah from Moshe to Yeshua Benun to the elders to all the prophets and so on and so forth, all the way to you. What does it mean to you? And you could go to no end of what it means, but generally, it's general. It's general information. The uh, be careful with the words that you say. Again, it's common, it's general information. But now, as we've seen in the last several shulim, the Mishnayot are getting more and more direct hits at home. Direct hits to our generation, direct hits to our personal lives, direct hits to our own struggles. And this is one of the most important things about learning, is that you're supposed to get to this. This is where you're supposed to get to. So, Bezat Hashem, we'll, uh, we'll uh, go over some of the things today and... Uh, try to uncover some of the uh, problems we didn't even know we had. Now, today we have a shiur for Refua Shlema of uh, Judith Shnog, Dalia Romero, Gilbert, Isaiah, Batista, Sarah Leah, Batsara, uh, Michel, Bat, Juanita, Nechama, Edel, Malka, Batsara Leah, um, Berward, Edward, Ber- oh Bernard, Bernard, Bernard Miller, Bernard Miller. Sorry, uh, Juan Sebastian Sedeno, uh, Sedeno, uh, Ruben Cardona, Maria Giraldo, uh, Giraldo. Uh, I know I did that wrong. The Spanish accent I don't have. Uh, Rose uh, Luare, uh, David Benesliya, Doris Bajora, um, uh, Levana Batsara, Sarah Bat Levana, um, and all of Am Yisrael, Bezat Hashem, will have Refuah Shlema, Refuah Nefesh, Refuah Guf. Um, as uh, some of you heard today, the uh, just in the last couple of hours, it seems like the War of Gog and Magog has taken the next chapter. Uh, the uh, Iranians, Imach Shimam Vizichram, have started sending missiles towards Israel. So, 
the uh, Midrash, one of the Midrashim that talks about the end of days, says very clearly that uh, in the end of days, the next chapter, the big chapter, the big move in the last war called Gogumagog will begin when the king of Persia, i.e. Iran, uh, is going to cause problems. And then another king from that area of the world, i.e. Saudi Arabia, will uh, fight them. And then Esav fights Ishmael. And then eventually they stop fighting each other and decide that it's all because of the Jews. It's all because of Yerushalayim, of Jerusalem. And then they decide to combine efforts and fight against the Jews. So if this is the next chapter of Gog and Magog, then um, we have to speed up our tshuva. We have to speed up everything we're doing because um, this part goes faster. We've been waiting for this for 2,000 years. And uh, every year we always thought, this is it, this is it, this is it. When the First World War began, some people thought it was Gogu Magog. But then the Chachamim said, no, there's going to be two other wars. There's, Gogu Magog has several parts, three wars total. So the first war is this. The second war will be much worse. will make the first war seem like it was nothing. And the third war will make the second war seem like it's nothing. And this is exactly what happened so far. The first war was World War One. A lot of people died, but the Second World War made made the First World War seem like it was nothing. Millions and millions of people uh, died, including six million Jews and millions of other non-Jews. And apparently, the damage that was done in the Second World War is nothing in comparison to what will be in the. Now all of the Nevi'im, all of the prophets told us different things of what's going to happen at the end of times and so on and so forth. But another thing they also told us is that there's really only one solution. And the solution is to do tshuva. That's the only solution. All the weapons in the world are not going to help you. All the armies in the world not going to help you. In fact, one of the amazing things that I'm seeing today as we speak is one of the prophecies that's written in this week's parasha come true. Where we see parashat Bechukotai is a very hard parasha. Oh, thanks. It's a very hard parasha. You have a few verses of, of, of blessings makes you feel good. Shem says, if you do good, you get some presents that are eternal presents. If you don't do good, you're in trouble. But not trouble just for a week or a month or a year. So, the first parasha that we read this week is Behal. Reminds us again that all of this starts at Mount Sinai. 
Don't think that it changed. Don't think that this is something new. It's just a continuation of what we started. Vasitem et chukotai vet mishpatai tishmeru vasitem otam veyashavtem el aaret levetach. You shall perform my decrees and observe my ordinances and perform them. Then you shall dwell securely on the land. Meaning, if you do everything I said, you have nothing to worry about. You'll have the land, you'll have parnasah, you'll have zivugim, you'll have wives and kids and everything you want, you're going to have. Just do what I said. That's all Hashem says. Simple. Where didn't he say it? Baal Sinai. Didn't change. Same thing that I said, Avraham, Yitzhak, and Yaakov, I told them something. I'm repeating what I said to them. Tell this to everyone. Just do this. Do my... Fulfill my laws. I'm not asking you to go climb mountains. I'm not asking you to go fly in the air. I'm not asking you to build iron domes. I'm not even asking you to have the biggest army. I'm not asking you to, uh, to, to not breathe for 10 minutes in a row just to see if you can make it. I'm not asking you to fast every day. I'm not asking you for anything extraordinary. All I'm asking you to do is follow my Torah. That's it. Yes, there are difficulties because you have a Yetzirah and you have desires and you want to steal and you want to be with a woman that's not yours and you want to take things that uh, don't belong to you and you want to look at things that don't belong to you and so on. I, I know, yeah, of course. Shem says, I know. I, have, I, I, I created it, I know. Barat Yetzirah, Barat Torah I created the Yetzirah, but I also created a cure. What's the cure? Torah. If you overcome it, you have nothing to worry about. You shall dwell securely on the land. So he says in the first parasha, and you'll have nothing to worry about. Now, if you don't, we go into parasha Bechukotai. He repeats again in Bechukotai Telechu Vet Bitzotai Tishmoru. If you follow my decrees and observe my commandments and perform them, again, the same exact, it's Bamash repeating the same exact thing. It's not like a new thing. It's the same exact thing again. In case you didn't get it the last parasha, he's repeating it again. Just fulfill my commandments, my decrees, my uh, perform them, all of that. And you'll have rain in their time. What does it mean, rain in their time? The Parnassah is going to arrive exactly when you need it. You're not going to have to worry about, am I going to have money to pay the rent? Am I going to have money to uh, pay my employees? Am I going to have money to pay, buy groceries? Am I going to have money to buy the, for the medicine that I need so I could uh, live another week? You're not going to have any of those problems. Rain will come in its time. Rain coming already is a miracle. Rain coming in, a, in its time is a blessing. It's two different things. The fact that there's rain is already a miracle. It's something supernatural like anything else. But if rain comes in the wrong time, it could be a curse. Like there was rain in Israel last week, flooded the whole country, people died. If rain comes and it's too much, people drown. If there's too little, there's starvation. It's not enough. The land dies. Coming on time is significant. That's a blessing. He says, all you have to do to get this blessing, to get Parnassah, and not have a single worry to have in your account, is just to fulfill my Torah. That's it. I didn't ask you for anything else. If you don't, if you don't, then we have a problem. You have a lot of problems. Instead of you being able to pursue your enemies, and your enemies running away from you, as it says in the beginning of the parasha, 
the opposite happens. Those who hate you will subjugate you and you will flee with no one pursuing you. What do you mean? How will you flee? Why? What are you running away from? No one's running after you. This doesn't make any sense. Usually if you're running away, it's because somebody's chasing you. He's saying you're going to run away from nothing. Nothing's going to happen. But you're going to run away. You're going to live with such fear that you're not going to know what to do. You're going to start running away. How is this happening right now? Anyone saw any news about soldiers in Israel just in the last few days or last few months or even last few years? Have you noticed that the enemy has rocks? And the Jewish people have actual real weapons? And the enemies most of the time are children that are half their size? And the Jews are tall and strong and soldiers, adults? But yet the little child that throws the rock and the soldier with the gun runs away? If the soldiers have simply shot a bullet in the air, forget about shot shoot the kid. Shoot a bullet in the air already, the kid's going to run away. But it's not happening. Why? Because this is part of the curse. You're going to be scared of your own shadow. The bullets and the iron domes of the world are not going to help you. Because when the enemy has the decree from Shemaim to take over, they don't need big weapons. They don't need atomic bombs. All they need is $5 kites. And this is exactly what's happening now. The terrorists, which are usually stupid people, by the way, just so you know, they're just generally, they're really dumb. Their, their IQ is slightly below the monkey, not to insult the monkey. But their highest invention was, you know, the biggest invention that they had in the history of terrorism was suicide bombing. Meaning the guy that carries the bomb also dies with it. How this makes sense, I have no idea. But that was like the greatest invention they ever had up to now. Now they have something new. Now Hashem gave them a blessing, unfortunately. What did He give them? He said, listen, instead of bombing yourself and killing yourself, why bother? It's so much. It also cost a lot of money for the bombs. I don't know, maybe $20, $30 worth of chemicals, another 50 bucks worth of wires, and so on. a lot of preparation. Here, two, three bucks, take a kite, fly it in the air, put, uh, put a, uh, uh, some uh, gasoline, connect it to a bottle of gasoline, or some type of a... Uh, uh, thing that's on fire, fly it over the, 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 the kite, fly it over the Jewish land, the farmland. Eventually, it's going to crash and burn all of the land. A $5 kite makes $5 million worth of damages. Go defend that. Go defend. You can't defend it. You cannot defend it. It's impossible to defend it. Even the suicide bomber was almost impossible to defend. You could defend it to a certain extent using cameras and so on and so forth because Hashem said, listen, I'm giving you a sign, but you're not getting it. So now all of the weapons and the technology that you have, that you invested in the missiles and the iron domes and, and, and IDF and all that stuff that you have, I'm going to show you how it all becomes worthless against five dollars. This reminds me what it says in the Gemara Masechet Gitin, when Titus, Titus, 
the Rashama Rusha that said, I'm going to declare war against God. God made the ocean go crazy and said, oh, why, you can't fight me on land, you only fight uh, in the ocean just like you destroyed the generation of Noach. So Hashem said, Abadko from Shamayim said, Rasha ben Rasha, you wicked son of wicked, I'm going to send you my smallest creation. Go fight that one. And he sent him, what? A gnat. You know, a gnat, like a mosquito. Mosquito went inside his nose and for the next seven years ate his brain. Go fight that. He was the richest, most powerful king in the world. A little gnat. A little gnat he couldn't defend himself against. Abutai, all of these people that are investing their time and resources thinking that IDF or Bibi Netanyahu or Zionism or, Tsa, or any of this stuff or even uh, the, the U.S. Marines or the, uh, the, the Navy SEALs or Trump, or Obama, or Osama, or anything of this world is going to help, you simply are clueless of who's running the show. Because Hashem is fulfilling prophecies and He's telling you, everything that you've prepared, I'll show you how it's worthless in a second. Now this is the type of Torah that a lot of people don't like to learn. Because it shocks our world. Now the Holy Israel says there are two types of divine service, two ways to serve Hashem. Two ways. The first way to serve Hashem is without critical analysis and contemplation. But instead with simple faith and wholeheartedness to observe His word and go in His ways by improving your character traits and performing deeds of loving kindness. Meaning, you're not checking yourself or anything. You're saying, listen, I believe everything's going to be good. Like they sing in the song. A young Gulan that doesn't even keep Shabbat and has a tattoo on his head, he made a song all the religious people sing. I even like the song myself. We love the song. Problem is, the guy that sings the song is not so kosher. Hopefully he does chuba. But a lot of people think, listen, I need the Tibalev. I'm, uh, I'm religious in my heart. I believe everything's going to be okay. Why do you believe everything's going to be okay? Because Hashem loves us. Why makes you think that Hashem loves us? Because it says in the Torah, where does it say in the Torah? I don't know. So, <laughs> so your whole future is depending on something you haven't verified. You haven't verified. You don't know where it says it. Why do you think everything's going to be okay? Oh, we have IDF. Okay, but you know that the Iranians, there's 80 million of them. And the Arabs in general, there's 2 billion of them. Even without an atomic bomb, if they all just decide to walk to Israel, just walk, without tanks, without jeeps, without planes, without anything, just all decide to take a march. March of dimes, march of Arabs. They go, march to do do they start walking, and they all decide to get to the border of Israel, and they all decide to spit. No weapons, no kites even, not even the $5 kite. They just decide saliva to leave their mouth. Israel drowns with 2 billion people. What makes you think we're going to be okay? What makes, well, Trump, oh, he likes Jews, his daughter is Jewish. So what? So what? Do you know how many Jews have hurt Jews in history? During the Beth HaMikdash, what do you think? It was all Goyim that hurt Beth HaMikdash? The whole problem started with Jews called Giborim. They were the Zionists of their day. 
there is a group of lefty liberal terrorists, Jewish terrorists, against themselves that were just caught on, on, on hidden camera taking a ride to the borders and begging the Palestinians to come and terrorize Israel. Israelis, lefty liberal Israelis, go to the Arab terrorists and beg them and pay them to go terrorize their brothers and sisters in the same country they live in. What makes you think we're going to be okay? Is The Iron Dome doesn't defend self-inflicted wounds. Now a person that serves Hashem with this blind faith, without critical analysis and contemplation, is one way of serving Him, saying everything is going to be okay. I believe, I have emunah. Rabbi Nachman Breslov said you should have emunah. Well, he also said a lot of other things. You're just not including that. He said a lot of other things. He wrote a lot of books. Rabbi Nathan, his Talib Muvak, a lot of books. He didn't just say have emunah. He said there's a prerequisite to emunah. There's a way to get the emunah. But you just like the emunah part because it rhymes with a lot of different words. Okay, I've said that. So the Ori Israel, Rabbi Yisrael Yisalant, says you have a choice here. You could serve Hashem wholeheartedly, meaning just observe what he says, like the parasha says. Improve your character, stop being cheap, stop being arrogant, perform good deeds, give people a ride, donate some challah bread, whatever, be a nice person. That's one way. You don't have to double check anything that you're doing. You don't have to necessarily double check if you're doing it even right. Just use your logic. Most people, that's how they serve Hashem, by using their logic. Whatever sounds good is good. So if I'm going to give the guy a ride, it sounds like a good thing. I'm not considering the fact that I may be giving him a ride to a prostitute's house and that's going to lead him to sin. I'm not thinking about that. He asked for a ride. I'm being a good Jew. I'm giving him a ride. That's a certain level of serving a chef just blindly. I'm just doing things like a robot. Then there's a second one. And the second level is quite different because it requires critical analysis. Critical analysis and contemplation Meaning before you do everything, you double check it once, twice, three times, four times, five times, as many times as necessary to no end until you know for sure this is the best possible way to serve Hashem. Meaning the job begins but never ends. You're constantly double checking if your character traits are really where they need to be or where you like them to be. Most people think that they're good. Most people think that they're smart. Most people think that they're generous. Most people think that there's really very few things wrong about them. The reality is usually quite the opposite. And the reason why is because, just like the Gemara says in Masechet Yomah, a person does not see wrong in himself, naturally. Does not see wrong in himself unless he's looking carefully. So this second way is... A very difficult thing because you have to be critical of who other than yourself. It's very easy to be critical of other people. It's very easy for me to tell you guys, you should do this, do this, do this, do this, do this. But when the point is finger me, you do this. I'm like, oh, hey, relax. You're being machmed. 
too critical of a teacher. If I'm pointing at you guys, much easier for me. When the pointing over here, it's like, hey, hey, relax. You're being a little, I just started. I'm new about Shuvah, leave me alone. It's easier to tell you guys what to do. It's easier to tell the people what to do. Hard to tell yourself. So now what's the difference? The first level, if you serve Hashem wholeheartedly, but blindly. Wholeheartedly, but you don't contemplate the issues. This leaves you, according to the Holy Side, there is no way to safeguard the status of the person's divine service. Meaning there's no way that you can maintain this level that you have. Why? A mild breeze can abruptly dispel all the good of his ways, chas and there is not to guard them. Meaning, as soon as you have a little test from Shemaim, you're going, you're going, you go. Wholeheartedly, I trust Hashem, and I trust the government, and I trust... Da, 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 da. As soon as there's a war in your life, all of a sudden, all bets are off. All of a sudden, no, no, I gotta go, I gotta, I gotta drive on Shabbat, I gotta work the Shabbat. Why? I don't have any money to pay the rent. Okay, but you said you believe in Hashem. Yes, Hashem let me down. I don't have any money, so I gotta go help Hashem, I gotta give him some money. What do you mean? But you said Hashem runs the world, He's gonna give you money, He's just gonna give you to be on time for a reason. No, 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 you, you mind your business. It's how I... I believe in Hashem. I love Hashem. Yeah, but you're working on Shabbat. You believe it in your head, not your heart. You believe it? You're working on Shabbat. No, no. I'm working on Shabbat because I know that if I work this Shabbat, then I don't have to work next Shabbat. See? You start rationalizing. You help the Yitzhah. Yitzhah says, Oh, I'm finished here. He's doing the rest of the work for me. I'm, fi- I'm finished. He's doing the rest of the work. I don't have to do it anymore. You start rationalizing your own Yitzhah. Why? Because you have never criticized yourself. You've never contemplated your actions. You've never double-checked the medicine that you're taking, whether it's working or not. Your tshuva was superficial. Your tshuva was exterior. Your tshuva was based on a suit and a hat and a beard and the things that other people see. But inside remained rotten just like it started. So the minute you have a test, you break apart and you're worse than you started sometimes. Because now, you could become naval birshuta Torah. Now you could become despicable in your actions with, in your own mind, permission from the Torah. Because now you're saying, no, no, I'm working on Shabbat so I could keep more Shabbats down the road. I'm working on Shabbat so I can provide for my family. It's a mitzvah. It's pikuach nefesh. My kids are going to die if I don't feed them. All types of nonsense that a person will feed in his own mind with Torah in mind. With Torah in mind. We're not talking about the person that doesn't know anything. We're talking about the person that knows something and now all of a sudden he's justifying his actions. And this is the danger of serving Hashem without criticizing yourself, without analyzing yourself, without contemplating your actions and double-checking that this is indeed what Hashem wants and not what you contemplated and created in your mind. The second way, the second way, on the other hand, pursuit of this path implants a secure stake to firmly anchor a person's divine service, as it says in Isaiah twenty-two twenty-three, so that all the winds of the world cannot dislodge it from its place. When a person really has real emunah, he also has no questions. You have real emunah, you have no questions for God. 
not that you know everything. It's that you know he's the one running the world. You are here to fulfill a job. As we said in last night's you, is something that's worth saying probably at least once a day until we actually start believing in it. Because it's very hard to get your head around it at first because it literally tells us and shows us that we know nothing. The Gemara in Masechet Chulin says that before a pin is permitted to pinch you, let's say if you're sewing, you're sewing something, you know, sometimes it happens that you pinch yourself with the pin, with the needle. It hurts a little bit, but it goes away after a few seconds. Before the pin is permitted to touch your skin and cause any type of pain, there's a bet din in Shamaim that has a case. There's a hearing. And they say, today, we have a case. What's the case? Yaron is going to be sewing, because he has nothing else to do today. And he's going to be sewing a new, uh, new suit. And we're going to decide today if the needle is going to prick his little finger and cause him some pain for seven, eight, or nine seconds. And it's Dayanim. The Gemara says, this is reality. This is not like a figment of our imagination. This is not like something that some people believe. This is foundation. It's the foundation of Judaism. Meaning that before there's a single pin that's allowed to touch your finger and cause you any pain, there has to be a decree from Shemaim allowing you to do so. Which means that there's no suffering without sin. Which means that there's nothing in the world without Hashem permitting it to happen. If we truly lived our life that way, then it becomes much easier to disconnect from all of the superficial nonsense that people tie themselves to, whether it's believing that they're safe because they have a certain amount of money, believing that they're safe because they have a certain army, believing that they're safe because they have a president, believing they have, they're safe because they have a spouse or children or family or friends. Reality is, the only reason you should believe anything is because Hashem runs the world. Everything else is disposable. Everything else is disposable. If a person starts getting their head around it and starts realizing, wait, anything that happens in my life every day, big or small, Hashem has to approve it. Which means, if I was delayed 15, 20 minutes on the way here, for some traffic that never happened before, for two years I'm coming here, never have I seen such traffic. But today, it took almost as long to be around the block from here as it was to get here. There had to be a reason. There was a Beddin in Shemaim, and they said, ah, Yaron has to be late 20 minutes today. Why? <laughs> well, I have to figure that out tonight. I don't know what I did. I don't know what I did, but apparently I had to be late. Something had to have happened. Could be a punishment, could be a reward. I'm not really sure. All I know is there was a Beddin in Shemaim that decided today I'm going to be late. 
if a person really understands and takes this and applies this to their life, everything changes. They no longer need to watch the news. They could see the highlights that people, you know, you get on your phone anyway, even if you press block, 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 it still comes anyway. <laughs> you could see the headlights, oh, Trump fired this one, Trump fired that one. It's every day he's firing somebody, so it's like almost seems like it's a recruiting office. Get the highlights, but in general, none of it matters. You don't need to li- listen to any speeches. You don't need to watch the stock market. You really become disconnected from the world. Why? Because you realize Hashem runs the world. You can even invest blindly if you have real emuna. Real emuna. I'm not talking about your uh, emuna like only when everything's going good. Meaning, even if the market, you found out, somebody told you, yeah, by the way, the market crashed, it dropped. 25% today, you're not phased. That's real emunah. Most people already have a heart attack by then. Because they have money in the market, they have their 401k, their IRA, their Bitcoin, Schmidtcoin, all this stuff that they have. And they're thinking that, oh, well, I'm going to be homeless next week, I have to start uh, filling out an application for unemployment. All can change in a second. But that's exactly the way of Hashem as we've seen many times in history, that before he gives us the official rebuke, before Shem Rachem, the Gzera comes from Shemaim, he brings us to a very, very high state. Builds us up a lot. He gives us every single opportunity to do tshuva. If we don't, that's why the fall is so difficult. Today, it seems like Am Yisrael has, is at a state where it's the richest it's ever been financially. It has the most amount of freedom it ever had, historically, with the exceptions of the times of David HaMelech and Shlomo HaMelech, who were king. With the exception of the times when we had kings of Am Yisrael, and Moshe Rabbeinu, this is the most amount of freedom we had. It's the most amount of money we've had technically the best health we've had but also the most amount of intermarriage also the most amount of Chilul Shabbat also the most amount of Chilul Hashem at some point the blessing can turn into a curse so without contemplating what we're doing wrong here Hashem is giving us so much and our own brothers and sisters and ourselves are not necessarily giving him the same back or anywhere near. We have to start contemplating. Because this fake love that we have saying we love Hashem, we love Hashem, we love Hashem, but in reality we're going against Him every day, it's enough. It's enough. These kites, $5 kites, should be enough of a proof that Torah is real, that Hashem could literally destroy everything in a second without any help. Without the kite, even we need to we need to find out what we're doing wrong. We have to start contemplating. Now today it's become very popular to be a Hasid. Hasidut Chabad is the biggest Hasidut today. Uh, the uh, thank you, Screen Mitzvah. Breslov is also growing Hasidut, and there's also many other smaller Hasiduts. 
Hasidut in their infancy, in the early generations, was started by certain rebbe's, big tzaddikim, but many others went against them. The Gaon Mivina went as far as to say that the original Chabad and Breslev, he said, were the closest religions to Judaism. He said that they've changed the focus from Hashem to a rabbi, to a human of flesh and blood, which many went against at the time, but over time there has been many good things that have come out of Hasidut. Now we've talked about this already last week. What's the Chidush? The Chidush is, is that many people that do tshuva are attracted to Hasidut. Many people that are religious are very attracted to the Hasidut look. And they go to Chabad or to Breslev and they feel like they're more part of Judaism if they're part of Breslev, if they're part of Chabad, if they're part of some other Hasidut. Because they look a certain way and they act a certain way and so on. But if you look at all of the Chachamim, you see that this is not Hasidut. As a matter of fact, one of the giants of Chabad, the one before the Lubavitcher Rebbe, his father-in-law, the Admomi Chabad, the Rav Yosef Yitzchak Schneerson, Zatzal, he wrote himself, this is not 300 years ago, this is in the previous generation. I'll just read it in English, save the time. It says, the strange and foreign opinion or, 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 uh, or thoughts that Hasidut is based on the exterior, on keeping of the lulas of all of these people that have died, these tzaddikim that have died in the past, Everybody has these big celebrations, a lula for this one, a lula for that one. The yard sites of all the tzaddikim, the parties, the simcha, all the dancing, the clothing, the itlabshut belevushet chasidim, the songs of chasidut. This is what makes you a chasid. Rachman al-Yitzlan, he said, Hashem and May the merciful one save us. That's what he says literally. This is what you think Hasidut is? The clothing and the songs and the yard sites and the food. This is what you think makes you a Hasid? This is the top Hasid in the world. This is what you think Rachman al-Itzlani says. Hashem Rachem. Hashem have mercy on us. Kama vekama nefashot bechasidei chabad. He's talking about his own Hasidut. He says, who is he talking about? He's talking about his own Chabad, his own people. He goes, they're thinking that it's all about their clothes and the beard and the, and the hats and the songs and the lulas and all of this stuff. And He goes, it's bitter for me to be the reporter of such horrible news that even the Avrechim, even the, the ones that learn, and the ones that call themselves Hasidim, are as far from the truth as can be. 
It's bitter for me deep inside to see this. It's hard to say and speak the truth. But despite how difficult it is, it's the only way we must purify the situation despite the condition that it's in. He says, between all of these learners, these avrechim, these chasidim, that grew up in an environment that called themselves chasidut, in houses that called themselves chasidim, and uh, with teachers that call themselves Hasidim, and uh, with an exterior that called itself Hasidut, those same Avrechim and Hasidim only had an exterior and their inside Reka, empty, nothing. It has nothing to do with Hasidut. You only had this, you know, some people, they wear a costume once a year on Purim. Some people wear a costume the whole year. Who is it coming? It's not coming from your own oven. This, by the way, for anyone that wants to curse me out before you do it, you can actually check this yourself. Lekute Devorim Chelek Bet Daf Arbamot Hamishim Beshalosh. It's a source. Asibale Kolzot Uaida Mishmat Mikutanto Lokibel Latzmo Oloshel Mechanech Madrich. What's the reason for all this? The false, the, the, the flawed learning. Flawed learning. He taught himself. Instead of finding himself a real teacher, it's going to give him on the head a few times a week to do tshuva. Hey, listen, you got to keep Shabbat. Hey, listen, you stop, stop going out with that girl. Hey, do, 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 do. All the things. Somebody tell him the truth. Not just the mirror. But somebody that sees the flaws in him, but is trying to get him to take away a tamen. Instead, no, no, I can teach myself. I'm going to learn on YouTube. I'll pick a rabbi every week. I'm going to pick a different rabbi. I'm going to teach myself. I'm going to be my own rabbi. I'm going to be my own rabbi. I'm going to ask myself questions. I'm going to read the books. What do I need you? I'll just open up a book, just like you open up a book. I'll ask a question. I'll answer my own question. What's the problem? He taught himself. He let himself. This is the fruit that he got from it. This fruit that grew, that came out of it, is beautiful from the outside and rotten inside. There's even more spicy things in the next letter, but I think you guys can get the point by now. We'll keep this one for next year. So, what is Hasidut? And what does it have to do with our Mishnah? Now, Hasidut is not about, as we just heard from the number one Hasid in the world in his time, it's not about the clothes. It's not about the fabring, it's not about the wigs, it's not about the jackets, it's not about 
anything related to your exterior. Although those things are part of it, that does not make you a chasid or chasida. Does not. What makes a person a chasid? A chasid, by default, is a person that does above and beyond what's obligated. If there's an alakha, he does above and beyond what's required of him. That's what a chasid is. Now, before you decide what you are and what you aren't, you have to give yourself a test. Just like Abi Islam Salam said. You have to test. You have to put a uh, put yourself up to the test and see can I be? Am I? Can I? Before they release a car into the market, what do they do? They give it a bunch of tests. Okay, let's test the brakes. So put some dummies in the car. Drive the car with no actual real driver to some machine, some remote control, as fast as possible in the direction of the wall. That way we'll test the brakes, we'll test the, uh, the, the metal itself, we'll test the, uh, the airbags, we'll test a lot of things. That's how you test things. You put pressure on them. So the good news is, is that just like there is a difficulty in this generation... That same difficulty can be used to test yourself. If you want to see it to be, to see if you can be a chassid, then first and foremost, define it. What does chassid mean? As we said, as the Torah says, as the Chachamim said, a chassid is someone that does above and beyond. If, let's say, for example, the Gemara Masechet Shabbat says, a, a, a person that's angry, all types of genom take control over him to such an extent that it's the equivalent, it can't get to the equivalent of him becoming considered like an idolater. Like if, for example, if somebody's angry but he contains himself, it's one thing, it's not good, but it's one thing. But if he's so angry, he's like a little hulk and he breaks half of his house, according to the Torah, that's considered the same thing as idol worship. Why? You just went and you've acted on your anger and the sin, just like when you make a mitzvah, you're bringing a korban, you're bringing a sacrifice to Hashem. When you're doing a sin and you're acting on it to such extremities, like being angry and breaking things, it's like you just brought a korban to who? The Satan himself. So what you do, instead of serving Hashem, you serve you served the Satan, that's Abu Dazarah. So, if someone wants to be a chassid, forget about anger. Not only you're not allowed to be angry, you have to be happy. When? When it's most difficult. That for some people, they have that nature. Some people have that nature. I don't. I'm not one of those people. I'm not lucky enough for that. But some people have that nature. They're always calm. I'm more fire. I have to work on myself all the time. Some people have this nature. They're, always, they're just mellow and calm and controlled. The, the World Trade Center could fall right next to them. It's like, ah, yeah, wow, it was a good building. Yeah, yeah. Do you want to get some trauma? Hey, well, you have no heart. You have no, there's no blood. What is there? Uh, ice in your veins? Some people are like that. Some people are like that. 
I'm like that about certain things like money. But other things like nonsense, like a lawyer that tells me right when I know it's wrong, that gets my blood really boiled. If Hashem wants to give me a gift in the next world, I'm going to ask Him to give me to give me just the keys to gain home for the lawyer part. For the lawyer part. Not for all of it, just for the lawyer part. Let me just handle that part. How much I hate lawyers. Ugh, I can give you stories from here to next year. You think I can talk for three hours on lawyers? 30 hours and give you a lecture straight. Reshaim. So anyway... No, no, I hate them. I hate them. No, that's... Chatanu Avinu Pashanu, lawyers I hate. Sorry, guys. I'm sorry. I've never found a lawyer I don't hate. Except my dear friend that died, actually. I had a dear friend. His name was Larry Krauss. I love a shalom. Tadik. He was the best lawyer I ever had, but he died. Other than that, every single lawyer I've ever met has been Mamas Rasha Merusha. I even had a couple of times that my own lawyer went against me. Meaning he gave my information to the opposing side. Yeah, I can get tired. Let's not get off topic. I'll give you stories for hours about lawyers. So anyway, some people have come. Some people have fire in their veins. They have a certain nature that Hashem created it. So if you want to be a Hasid, you have to be as far removed from the bad side as possible. If Hashem said no anger, you are not only not angry, you're happy. Now this is easy for some people, hard for others. But it's generally a test that only applies to some people. Some people. There is another test that applies to everyone, specifically our generation. The test is called money. If you want to know if you can be a Hasid, forget about if you are a Hasid, if you even can, if you can be a Hasid, start with money. Start with how you react to money. And the reason why, if you love money, you cannot be a Hasid. If you love money, you can never be a chassid until you start hating money. Because if you love money, by default, you will be cheap. If you love money, you're not going to share it. You're not going to be a generous person. And that's the opposite of Hashem. Hashem is generous. Hashem only gives. He never takes. So, by default, being cheap is the opposite of Hashem. It's the farthest point in the world from Hashem. It's the epitome of the opposite of Hashem. So a cheap person can never be a chassid. Why? Because you're supposed to be the opposite. Instead of being cheap, you're supposed to be most generous. So if you love money, you can't be a chassid. Not Chabad, not Bretzlev, not, not even your own chassid. You by yourself, you can't be a chassid. You can't even call yourself chassid. Why? Because you have to do more than what you're allowed to do. More than you're supposed to. You're supposed to be generous. Hasid is overly generous. You're cheap. <laughs> You're as far as can be. Cheap people on the opposite side of Hasidut because they're supposed to be above and beyond the requirement. If you spend more money on lunch than you do on Torah, you're as far from being a Hasid as we are from the moon. If your lunch costs you a hundred bucks, but when it comes to Kiruv, when it comes to buying a book of Torah, 
When it comes to a donation to a poor person, you only have five bucks to give, but your lunch was a hundred bucks, you're as far from being a chassid as we are from the moon. Not this moon, the moon on Pluto. <laughs> so already we see, okay, who's a chassid? Not so many people. The looks, there's many of them, Baruch Hashem. Looks can be deceiving. I have nothing against chassidut, but we have to identify what it is. Because a lot of people that do tshuva are attracted to it. Before you enter, you need to know what you're entering. If you're already doing tshuva, that means you want to stop being a faker. So you can't stop being a faker and be a new type of faker now. You can't, be, you can't go from fake to faker. You've got to be real. That's why it requires, tshuva requires you to contemplate what you're doing. So this Mishnah, Baruch Hashem, is all about how people react towards material and financial assistance from people and so on. How people, how materialistic are people? There is a Mishnah later on that we'll get to in, a, in three Mishnayot that talks about the attitude that people have towards donations and philanthropy and so on. But this specific one really talks about more about how you connect to material altogether. What's your, what's your uh, perspective of it? How you treat it? Do you love money? Do you hate it? Do you worship it? So we see here, there's a word chasid. We see who is the chasid we'll get to eventually. If you want to be a chassid, it tells you instructions how to get there. Also tells you how to be a rasha too. So here we see that there's four character types among people. Meaning that there are four perspectives that a human being can have about money. Four perspectives. There's nothing else. It's four perspectives. First, four ways of how you can view money, meaning its level of importance to you. One who says, my property is mine, and your property is yours. My bank account is my bank account. Your bank account is your bank account. This is an average character type, meaning this is most people. But some say this is also the character tri- characteristic of Sodom. It's meaning that the average is how Sodom and Gomorrah began, which we'll get into shortly. How and who and what and when. The second perspective is, mine is yours, and yours is mine. Take my bank account, and I'll take your bank account. This is an unlearned person, an amaritz, i.e. like an ignoramus, someone who doesn't really know much. 
Third is, mine is yours, and yours is yours. Everything is yours. I don't want anything. Everything is yours. That's chasid. Doesn't want any gift from anyone, and only wants to help others. That's chasid. Like Shlomo HaMelech says, someone who hates gifts lives. Someone who hates gifts lives. The fourth is the easiest. Yours is mine and mine is mine. That's the Rasha. That's the wicked. Everything is his. Your stuff is his. His stuff is his. Everything is his. Who is this like? Lavan. Lavan Rasha came to Yaakov Avinu. He said, how come you stole my gods? Yaakov said, I didn't steal any gods. You could find it, whatever you want. Tututu. After he couldn't find anything, he says, okay, what else do you know? You didn't find, what do you want? He says, hey, you ran away, you took my daughters, they're my daughters, your kids are my kids, your money is my money, everything is mine. What do you mean everything is yours? I worked for 20 years. I married the two daughters, they're my wives. I had the kids with the wives, they're not your kids. What do you mean everything is yours? Lafan said, everything is mine. He turned himself into an idol. So now, we're going to go into the details of what does it mean? What does it mean? So first and foremost, as we said, these are four character traits, four character types among people, the type of character. It's important to know this because people frequently rationalize to excuse themselves from helping other people. So the approach that a person has on dealing with money usually tells you a lot about their overall character. In the Beknesset, everyone looks like Avraham, Yitzchak, Yaakov, Moshe, Aaron, every day, Tzadikim. You go to Beknesset, you see everybody with Tfilinan, with Tzitzit, Everyone's tzaddikim, shtabach, shimoy, like, wow, we're at Mount Sinai all over again. Every day. Everyone has tefillin, sometimes it's over here, it's the wrong place. But anyway, overall, everybody looks like a tzaddik. Everyone looks like a tzaddik. But the Gemara in Masechet Shabbat says, when you get up to Shemaim after 120, they're going to ask you a few questions. The first question they're going to ask you is, what? Did you conduct your business with emunah? Meaning, did you consider Hashem before you made every transaction? Is it legal? Is it illegal? Am I overcharging? Am I undercharging? Am I giving ma'asel? Am I not giving ma'asel? Am I working on Shabbat? Am I working on a regular day? Am I working on a holiday and making excuses why I'm allowed and not allowed? Am I making illegal deals with people that I'm not supposed to deal with? Is my business itself kosher? Or am I just rationalizing my way to a bigger bank account. You know, a lot of people do that. A lot of people say, listen, you know how much stuck I give? Yeah, but you murder people on, on a daily basis. Yeah, but you know how many people I help? There's no mitzvah ba'ba'avera. There's no such thing as a mitzvah that you make because of a way of sin. You can't go murder people, but go give $25,000 a week in stakah because that's the uh, half the bounty that you got. 
You can't go be a drug dealer and say, yeah, but I give all the money to Beknesset. Thank you, but no thank you. You can't go steal money like Bernie Madoff and say, yeah, but I fund, you know how many charities I funded? Thank you, but no thank you. That's not a mitzvah. That's not a mitzvah. So when you see people in a Beknesset, the Gemara says looks can be deceiving in Shemaim, they're not going to ask you how you behaved in the Beknesset. What are they going to ask you? Did you conduct your business with Hashem in mind? Why? Because how you are in business is how you really are in general. How you are about money is how you are in reality. There's no fakers in money. You are what you are when it comes to money. If you're a liar, you're a liar. If you're a cheater, you're a cheater. If you're generous, you're generous. Nobody lies about that. So even though everyone looks like Abraham, Yitzhak, and Yaakov, and Abekneset, as soon as they get to their job, it could be Paron, Nebuchadnezzar, Esav, all of, the, all of their friends. It could be Haman himself over there. That's why they don't ask you how you are in the Bekness. They ask you how you are in business. So the Me'iri says, it's critical to know how a person deals with money. One who says, my property is my property, your property is your property. This is the average character type. This person's attitude is, I don't want others to take anything from me. I don't want anyone to derive any pleasure from me. And I don't want to derive any pleasure from them. I don't want to deal with anybody. I'll take care of my business. I'll take care of my house. I'll take care of my kids. I'll take care of my this and my that. Don't ask me for anything. You hear those people? Don't ask me for anything. This, unfortunately, is the average person. And that type of personality falls in between a chassid and a rasha. At any given moment, he's going to break right or left. He's either going to become a chassid and become generous and he's just going to, he's going to start giving and since he's not taking from anyone, he's going to become a chassid by default. You're not taking from anyone. You don't want any favors from anyone. Good for you. And you're giving. Or on the other hand, he continues not giving, but he starts taking. He takes the ride. He takes a shoe. He takes a CD. He takes a book, he takes a loan, he takes a wife, he happens to take his, uh, you know, puts his hand on the money too. He takes and he takes and he takes. He starts getting comfortable. He forgot that he hasn't given a single thing in his life. Now he becomes a rasha. Now he becomes a rasha. So he feels everyone is entitled to their own stuff. Leave me alone, like the mentality that people like to always say, because it sounds good. Live and let live. You live your life, I live my life. Leave me alone, don't tell me what to do. Yeah, but you told me what to do. Yeah, but I'm trying to help you. I'm trying to help you also. I don't need your help. I don't need your help either. Okay, so live and let live, leave me alone. You know, people that volunteer their advice into your life, if you ever want to get rid of them, there's a trick. Because people love to volunteer unsolicited advice into your life. They love to do it. It's like, mamash, it's like one of the pleasures of the world is telling people what to do. The reason why is because you could vicariously live through other people's life just by telling them what to do. It's much easier, much more fun just to see what happens. It's like little lab rats 
tell him this, tell him this, tell him this, and you see, go! And then you see this one crash, ah, missed this one. The other one, do, 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 crash, oh, this one fast. Terrible meeting, that's the I won. What one? Two people died, and what, your advice? Yeah, but the third one won. Next time I'll do better. People think it's like the world is a lab rats. So if you want to get rid of these scientists, friends of yours, and all of these family members that volunteer their advice, as soon as somebody starts giving you this advice that you didn't ask for, immediately, they ask you a question, respond with a question. Don't answer the question. They ask you all, but when do you think you're going to get married? When do you think you're going to get married? Wait, but I asked you, yeah, yeah, but I just want to know when you're going to get married. Oh, but I'm married. Oh, when did you get married? 17, 18, 25, 30. Why did you get married? And continue asking them questions. After the third question, like I said, I got to go. I got to go. It was good talking to you. Good talking to you, cuz. And the conversation's over. Why? They don't want you to ask them any questions. Why? Because they're feeling the taste of their own poison. They're feeling the taste of their own poison. This is, if you're ever going to listen to any inter, you know, personal advice, for me, this is what you have to listen to. Why? Because people will love to give you their advice, and all of their advice has nothing to do with you. It has to do with them. They're giving you advice of what they want, not what you want. They don't know what empathy is. If they did, they wouldn't volunteer their advice in the first place. So, you want to get rid of them? Very easy. Start asking them questions. I want to give you marriage advice, ask them about their marriage. I want to give you money advice, ask them about their money. Oh yeah, you really know. You know what you should do with your company? You know you should do this, you should do this, you should do that. Wait, wait, what are you doing with your company? I don't have a company. So how do you know about companies? No, I just see on TV. Okay, I see on TV. Oh, thank you, bye. It's like asking a blind person for, for directions. Thank you, I appreciate the effort, but uh, you're blind. You're not going to ask the homeless guy for financial advice. I'm sorry. With all due respect and thank you for your courage, I don't need uh, advice from you. Generally, advice from people is poison. You have to get advice from people that you respect and there's a reason to get advice from them. They're qualified. They don't have a bias is the first requirement. If they have a bias, already you have a problem. Doesn't mean that you can't take it just means that you have to take it into account. They have a bias. Like, for example, a lot of kids that contact me about marriage, you know, getting shiduch and so on, the biggest issue is their parents never, ever like who they want to get married. I don't think there's ever a parent in history that ever liked the person that their daughter or someone's going to marry unless they pick them. Why? No one's ever good enough for their honey. No one's ever good enough for their son. No one's ever good enough for their daughter. No one's ever good enough. She's too ugly. He's too fat. He's too rich. She's too poor. Everybody's deformed. But their son or daughter is perfect. <laughs> so already you see there's a biased advice. Biased advice. In general, you have to ignore part of that advice from the parents. With all due respect to all of your parents and mine, and we're honored, we're supposed to honor our parents, but there are certain parts of advice that they give that if it's biased, we cannot acknowledge it. I have a uh, student that his father worked overtime, overtime to make sure his marriage doesn't happen. He hated his girlfriend, hated her. Hated her, like almost like we're supposed to hate Amalek. Unbelievable. Why? 
after, I don't know, they were dating for a while. They weren't necessarily religious for a while. And uh, for years he loved her. She was like a second daughter to him. But one day, she got into a disagreement with one of his other sons that disrespected her. And she told him to leave her alone. He didn't like the way she responded to his other son. From that moment on, he decided she's Amalek. Three years, she's Chava, she's Sarah, she's Rivka, she's Rachel. All of a sudden, she told one of his sons, stop disrespecting me, she turned to Amalek. So now, they decided at that point, we're going to get married. We're already together for a while, we're going to get married. No, I'm not coming, I'm going to do everything to stop it, I'm going to talk to all the rabbis not to marry you guys. Shem Rachem. Mamash, craziness. Baruch Hashem, I tried to help as much as I can. And Baruch Hashem, they got married. They're happily married. Everything's okay. But you see, the stupidity of people sometimes because of their ego has no limits. Has no limits. So, we have to know, if we're going to take advice from certain people, we have to have like a, like a, a list. A to-do list. A prerequisite list. Biased? Okay, we'll still accept you if you're biased, but it has to be under control. Experience, you don't have that much, okay, but we'll have to take that into consideration. A lot of experience, we'll have to take that into consideration. Bad experience, we'll have to take that into consideration. Everything, you have to decide. Who are you taking advice from is even more important sometimes than the advice. So it's important for us to take this stuff because people love to give advice. People get paid millions of dollars to give advice. But that's because the people that give advice are not accountable. Meaning, they're going to tell you, go run, run, run really fast, do all these things, and if you fail, you come back to them with a tail between your legs, like, listen, I listened to you when I failed, like, ah, you shouldn't have listened to me. What do you mean? I just put my whole life on the line for you. You listen to your advice. Yeah, listen, there's other people. It's other, like, they're not going to hold it, they're not going to accountable for it. But if it works, God forbid, it's a, it's a bigger kapata vorot. Why? They're going to never let you off the hook. They listen, remember, I told you and it worked. Yeah, you told me 900 things. One thing worked. Even a broken clock is right twice a day. <laughs> you were right once out of 900 times. Yeah, but I was, maybe this is the second time. You should listen to everything else you ever says. Like, so, you have to pick carefully. Now, the person that doesn't want to contribute to other people's life and wants to keep everything, all the possessions he has to himself, it's very antisocial behavior, but also very dangerous. Because even though on one end he could turn into a tzaddik, into a chassid, by single move, because right now he is not giving and he's not taking. If he continues not taking, continues what he's doing, he doesn't take anything, just like Shlomo Amelach says in Proverbs 1527, a uh, one who despises gifts shall live. So he continues not taking gifts. Continues his current behavior, it's easy enough. But he starts giving. All of a sudden he starts giving to the local synagogue. All of a sudden he starts giving to the Kiruv organization, all of a sudden he starts giving to the homeless, the poor, the widow, the orphan, the convert, and so on. Simple. He gives ma'asel, he gives tzedakah, and so on. He turned to a chassid. But 
Da'at, on the other hand, if instead of giving, he starts taking, Zo Midat's Dom, he turns into a Rasha. Why? Because the straw that broke the camel's back with Sodom, the prophet Ezekiel reviews the whole issue with Sodom and says, in chapter 16, verse 49, she did not strengthen the hand of the needy. Who is she? She is Sodom. The people of Sodom, in Hebrew, Sodom, were all extremely wealthy. Millionaires, billionaires, and anything in between. But they had the same exact mentality. I won't give you, you won't give me. That's it. But what about all the poor? Yeah, yeah, we can't have them here because they're going to want and they can't give. So there's a rule. What's the rule? They're not allowed in. No poor person is allowed in. It's like, yeah, but what if he's my cousin? What if he's... It doesn't make a difference. Not allowed in. And there's a law. Anyone that brings in guests, the city takes over those guests and does what they want with them. So if somebody was courageous enough to go to Sodom thinking that they're going to host him, if he was tall, they would put him on a short bed. Why? Because if his legs were over the bed, they said, oh, there's a new law in town. What's the law? We have to put you, uh, we have to put people exactly in the bed. You have to fit. There's no, we're not allowed to have your legs over the bed. So we have to cut them off. They cut off his legs. If the person was short, they put him in a long bed. Why? Ah, you know, you don't fit the bed. It's not good. They stretch him until they kill him. One time the daughter of Lot, Lot was the uh, nephew of Avraham Avinu. Lot had a daughter, and his daughter decided to give some homeless guy some money. To help him out, miskin. She said, oh, you broke the law. We have to also prosecute you. What? They put her honey on her entire body and then released the bees. And in, in Torah, where it says, uh, Hashem heard the scream from Sodom, it was her. It was the daughter of Lot that the beast killed her. Why? She gave a little money to a homeless guy. Meaning that they were so into their money that they couldn't fathom anyone taking anything from them. There was a law, there was a law against giving anyone. The Gemara Maseret Sanhedrin, page 109a, says that they prevented outsiders from coming into the city even though they lacked nothing and had plenty to spare. They were all rich. They were all rich. Now, on one hand, if you don't give, that means that you know that other people are not going to give you. The Sodomites didn't care. Like, we don't need your favors. We don't need your help. We don't need anything from you. We have, we're all care on our own. Very antisocial and disgusting. Now, the, the, the Gemara Maseret Eruvin, page 49, also Bavavata 12b, says that the attitude of refusing to allow other people to benefit from your property, from whatever you have, is even worse when there's a no-loss situation. Meaning, It's a, where someone can benefit from what you have, and you don't lose that out of it. You don't lose out of it. So for example, let's say you have a uh, store or house, whatever it is, and the outside you have like a little canopy or something, a little roof, and it's raining outside, and someone wants to come and hide under your can. He's not going inside your house. 
and wet everything. He just wants to hide under the little roof thingy that you have outside. And he's like, oh, it's my property. Yeah, but I'm just here. I'm not going inside your property. I'm just going outside. I'm just, I don't want to get wet. No. Or these neighbors. Everybody has this. at least one of these neighbors. Every neighborhood has at least one of these people. Well, one person on the block wants to uh, remodel their house. All of a sudden, the person sees, oh, they're remodeling something. They call the city and they want to find out if you have the right paperwork to extend your house, to build a roof, to build an extension to the back, to build a garage, to convert the garage. They call the city. The city comes, gives you a fine for more expensive than the job is. And now you can't do it. You don't know who called because they don't tell you. Who was it? It's the neighbor. Why? Because he's jealous. Because he's jealous. Every neighborhood has one of these people. Every neighborhood. People want to have, they want to extend their house. They start, they, people call, and to do do. It's unbelievable how disgusting some people are. Unbelievable. So, this is more of a branch of what we're talking about. But the point is that is that people are saying, listen, you can't extend your house because then it's going to, you know, my view. My view is going to be disturbed. What view? There's a house behind me. Your view of the other house? It's not like we live in a mountain and I'm going to block your view of the ocean. Your view is my house. Now it's going to, you know, now. Otherwise it was his house. Nothing changed. No, no, no. I was really, I was really loving the view. What do you mean? You had shades all the time. You never went into that room. Yeah, but now I want to. Now I want to. I really love that room now. I never knew how much I loved that room. Such, there's, there's people like this in the world. They exist. They exist. Yeah. Fidel knows. Fidel knows these people. Yeah. So, these people from Sodom have the mentality of each man for himself. And this is not merely an average, but rather an unethical person. Since it negates the entire concept of benevolence, which will eventually lead to stinginess. And even cruelty. This is the beginning of cruelty. This mentality of what's yours is yours and what's mine is mine is the root of all cruelty. Now someone once said the root of all evil, money is the root of all evil. I don't know who said it, I haven't checked, but I bet you it was a Jew. And not only a Jew, it had to be a religious Jew or at some point in his life or maybe his entire life. Because that is exactly what this Mishnah is saying. This is Dvar Torah. Money being the root of, e- of all evil is li- literally what this Mishnah is telling you. Meaning that it's not saying that money itself is evil. You need it. It's a tool. It's like a hammer. It's like a nail. It's a house. It's a tool. It's the root. Meaning that if misused, or your perspective of it is incorrect, it could be the beginning of all evil on earth, whether it be a war, or a divorce, or a breakup, or theft, or something. It's the underlying cause of all the evil in the world. Rabbeinu Yonah, says that this sheli sheli v'shelcha shelcha 
is an average characteristic, is referring to one who disperses charity out of a sense of religious obligation in spite of an inner selfishness. Meaning that this mentality of what's mine is mine and yours is yours also applies to the religious people. How? He says a religious person that has this mentality is going to give exactly what he needs to give, not a penny more. I have to give one dollar tzedakah a year, that's what I have to give. I have to give myself, I'll give myself. I have to give one, not a penny more. Somebody comes to you, homeless, this, that, whatever. Oh, I gave already, I'm sorry. Yeah, but you have, Hashem gave you plenty. Yeah, but I gave what I had to give. Why? Because realistically, he doesn't want to give. He doesn't want to give. He's only doing it because he knows he has to. Because he's religious. You understand? He's only doing because he has to. This is not giving. This is business. When a husband gives his wife exactly what she needs for groceries and not a penny more, that's a problem. Why? That's business. It's not a marriage. When a boss gives his, 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 his uh, employees exactly what they have to, no bonuses, no extras, no days off, and that, then it's business. There's nothing wrong with business being business. The problem is that if he has a problem and he wants their help and he wants them to suck it up and work extra overtime and do more for him, they say, hey, 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 you didn't do more for us. Don't expect anything in return. It's not our company. It's not our company. You paid us exactly what we deserve, exactly what we earned. You didn't give us a penny more. Don't expect us to give you a penny more. As soon as a better contract comes along, they leave to do 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 without even saying goodbye. Hey, how are you leaving? You're with me for nine years already. I'm with you for nine years. That's finished. I'm going somewhere else for nine years. Why? But why don't you tell me? Hey, you paid me. It was business only. Finished. Sometimes one does this and the other one does that. Sometimes one is giving over and the other one is taking and doesn't give. And eventually one of them turns into becoming very, very bitter. That's when bad things happen. That's when divorce happens. That's when scandals happen. When you see all of these people in the media that you know scandals get unfolded, it's not because it was just discovered. As you know... A bunch of people were a part of it for years. Whether it's the sex scandals in the, in, the, in, the, in the White House or in Hollywood or all these different things, this craziness happening in the world. It's been happening for decades, for centuries. Some of these people that have been politicians or business people or superstars of some kind have been criminals their whole life. And only now somebody said Bill Cosby is a rapist. Yeah, but he was a rapist 25 years ago. And only now he said he went with the... Okay, but he did that already 30, 40 years ago. Why are you bringing it up now? Because now we don't have any more benefits to take from him anymore. So let's just throw him under the bus and get the benefit in another way. He finished his lifetime. He finished his usage. He ran out of battery. So we have to get our... We got to get our, our money in a different way. We got to get our money in a different way. It's not that... It was exposed because no one knew. It was exposed because that's the next chapter. 
the people that were getting said, you know what? I think I have a better way to get more from you. How? I'm going to destroy you instead. Yeah, but you were my friend for 20 years. Yeah, yeah, that's fine too. We had a good time. We were friends for 20 years. You had a good time, right? We had 20 years. What's the problem? doesn't change what we had. That's the mentality. doesn't change what we had. Yeah, but you're destroying my life. I'm going to get a divorce. I'm going to this. I'm going to that. Yeah, sorry, buddy. Should have thought about that 20 years ago. Mamash, lifeless souls. This is the real world, Rabotai. If you haven't seen it, Baruch Hashem, but know that it exists. Know that it exists. And it exists more and more so with success. More and more so when you get involved with money. Because that is the root of all evil. Starts there. So, Rabbeinu Yonah is telling you that a person that gives specifically just to fulfill an obligation, what he's actually saying is, whatever I'm entitled to keep, I'll keep. Whatever I'm allahically obligated to give, I'll give. So even though his attitude is not ideal, not an exemplary attitude, this is not what you want to teach your kids, he's still considered an average person because you prefer not to give, and he's giving, so at least he's doing something. The problem is that this can break apart into pieces, and like we said, at a moment's notice. As soon as something goes wrong with his system, all bets are off. So for example, some of these people, they'll give to a certain cause. Or they'll give to a certain rabbi. And as soon as something goes wrong, or something is shaky, or the check didn't clear, or the rabbi didn't say hello, or he didn't write him back an email, as soon as a little duck slips before he goes into the pond, the whole thing is off. Why? Because he was already on the border. He was already like, Mamash, on the line. I don't really want to give, but I'm giving. Let me just do it already. And every time it's like he's suffering to give. So there's a story of Abizusha Minapoli. Abizusha Minapoli was one of the giants of his generation. Kodesh Kodeshim. Before he became a very, uh, you know, the Gdolado, he would get a, uh, there was a uh, businessman that would sponsor him. Businessman would give him his monthly expenses. And while he was still unknown, and from the time that he gave him, he started to see success after success after success, to the point where he became fabulously rich. Enormous amount of money. And everyone asked him, what's your secret? Even the businesses that you're investing in are terrible, but you're making money somehow. You're making all the mistakes in the book, but somehow you have a blessing from Shemaim. What are you doing? He says, I'm not. I'm not telling you. I'm not telling you. I'm not telling you. You know, people like to keep secrets to themselves. Only problems they want to share. But good things, they want to keep to themselves. Problems, uh, can you lend me some money? Can you this? Can you that? Can, can, yes. They share it to everybody. But as soon as they have something good, they don't like to share that. They're afraid that you'll make money too and you'll have just as good a car as them. Or a better car. 
So one day, one of the people pushes, 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 and he tells them, okay, listen, my secret is I have this tzaddik. His name is Rabbi Zusha. No one knows him. I know he's a tzaddik. I give him money every month. Give it to Rabbi Zusha. Okay, if you give it to Rabbi Zusha, he's good. Don't worry, don't get me wrong. He's a tzaddik, it's good, but he's not as great as the Magidmi Mezrich. That's his rabbi. If you're already going to imagine how much fortune you got from giving to Rabbi Zusha, imagine how much more Hashem will bless you if you give the Magidmi Mezrich. He does the math. He goes, Yeah, you're right. He stops giving to Rabbi Zusha and he starts giving to his rabbi. Makes sense, no? Give to the bigot tzaddik. All he sees is suddenly his fortunes start collapsing faster than he made it. He's giving to the Magid, he's giving to the Magid, he's giving, he's giving, and now he cannot give anymore. Why? His fortune is collapsing. Collapsing, 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 collapsing. Eventually he gets to a point where he has very, very little left. He goes back to the Rabbi Zusha and he says, I don't know what happened. I'm sorry. Maybe Hashem is mad at me that I stopped giving you, but I was really giving you a rabbi. He's Gdolador. Everyone knows it. He goes, hey, Rabbi Zusha says, hey, listen, it's your uh, choice. You give whoever you want. No problem. Hashem provides. Because, yeah, but why did this happen to me? How come I lost everything? Oh, that's a different question. It's a different question. When you gave to me, says, when you gave to Rabbi Zusha, and you didn't ask too many questions of how big of a tzaddik I am, and how small of a tzaddik I am, and how much I know and how much I don't know, in Shemaim they said, all he's giving for, he's giving for Torah, for the purity of Torah. There's no reason for us to ask any questions when we're going to give him a reward, whether he deserves it or he doesn't deserve it. He just gave for the purity of giving, and he gave it to Torah without worrying if he's a tzaddik, or he's big, or he's small, or it's the biggest cube organization, or the smallest, or it's the biggest tzaddikim, or the smallest tzaddikim, or it's a big color or a small color. He gave a, ple- a place that needed. So his giving at its purest form. There's no reason for us in Shemaim, the Bedin decided, no reason for us to double check if he really deserves the reward for what he gave because there could be some sins that ruined the reward. He gave purely, we'll give purely without double checking. He didn't double check, we're not going to double check. So Zusha said to him, Rabbi Zusha says, when you checked and you found out that there's a bigger tzaddik than me and you started giving to him and Shemayim did the same. It's like, oh wait, he checked. Before he gave, he checked who's a bigger tzaddik. So we also have to check if he deserves the reward. And once they checked your actions, they said, hey, I'm sorry, you're making so many sins every day. Okay, you're giving, but you're wasting seed, you're making all these sins, you don't deserve anything, you're lucky you're alive. When you didn't check on me, didn't check on you. When you checked on me, they checked. And this is Rabotai in its simplest form, how Hashem runs the world. When it comes to giving you a reward, when it comes to tzedakah, and the things that when you give, some people like to ask questions. I can tell you from experience, one of the things 
It's my personal pleasures in life. I like to give. I've always liked to give. And, but one of the difficulties of Kiruv and living this life is that you have to, you give a lot, Baruch Hashem, to the people and give chesed and so on, but also you're depending on other people giving. People donate for Kiruv and so on. Now this is difficult for me because I'm not used to taking anything from anyone. Nor do I even like it. But some people make sure that you hate it. So they don't want to just give. They want to get your blood type too. They want to, what are you going to do? Let me see the budget. Let me see this. Let me see that. What are you going to do? Who are you going to give? And they want to ask you 75 questions. And you're thinking, in the beginning, I would entertain this to some extent. I don't know, maybe like five, six minutes. I don't have that much time. I would entertain this. They'd ask questions, why, who, what, why not answer questions. But after a few times, I realized that the people that ask the most amount of questions give the least. They asked 900 questions and at the end they gave you $75. I said, do me a favor, I'll give you $75. Just don't ask me any questions. I'll give you, I'll give you 150. Leave me alone. I'll give you 100. Leave me alone. Don't call me ever again. Please. Please don't call me. Mamash, you have some people, they just, they want to take the blood out of you because they're writing a check for $36, for $300. Whatever it is, I don't care how much it is. If you're giving because of, of any other reason other than the fact that you want to give, don't give to us. Give to somebody else. There's plenty of organizations. We need, but not from you. Not from you. Don't torture me. I don't have any time for it. I don't answer the phone. This is actually part of the reason I don't answer the phone anymore. This is part of the reason I don't answer the phone. And this is also the reason why when people tell me, listen, I want to give donation. Can you call me? I say no. It's the default answer. I don't care how much you want to give. The answer is no. I cannot call you. Tell me what you want, who you want. If you want to donate online, you can send a check. If you want help, I'll call you. You want help, you have an issue, you have a problem, you have a... I'll try, I'll try my best to call you. I can't call everybody, I try. If it's really necessary and it goes through the necessary instructions of what needs to happen before the call, you tell me what the problem is as much as possible so I know that as soon as I call you, you know, we're going directly to the problem and not just chit-chatting. Fine. But if it's, you're going to talk to me about things and then... It's tough. It's tough. It's a tough situation because some people just have nothing to do and they just want to ask you 27 questions about $27. <coughs> like when we uh, said we tried this uh, drive, we tried raising $250,000, several people said, what is it going to? What is it going to? What is it going to? So I said, okay, you know what? People are asking this question. I guess maybe it's important for them to know. So I asked actually wrote detailed list of all the different projects we were working on. Not a single one of those people donated a dollar. Not a single one of those people that asked, where is it going, donated a, second, a dollar, a single dollar. They all said, oh wow, this looks interesting. This is what, this is what I spent five hours doing. It's for you to say this interesting. Why are you even asking if you're not going to give? But this is, this is a kapahat avonot. I made sins in my life, so I deserve kapahat avonot. The point is, Abutai, is that there are rules to giving, there are rules to taking, there are rules to how you treat money. The first aspect of it is if you're always going to be, you're going to give the minimum, you're just to pass, you are playing with fire. Why? Because as soon as your walls start shaking, there's a test. Because you're playing, you're, you're really on the line, you can easily fail. Now the second opinion that's claiming that this mentality 
of yours is yours and mine is mine is from Sodom, is a sodomistic trait. It's holding that this attitude, Rabbeinu Yonah says that unless you're giving generously, unless you're doing it purely from your heart and you're giving, you're sacrificing, you're trying, you're giving above and beyond. Unless you're doing it generously, don't give. So he says, don't give. If it's not generously, don't give it all. We don't need your mitzvah. And we'll give him another way. Like some people, Baruch Hashem, listen, I don't ask for anything. Baruch Hashem, we have plenty. But some people, God bless them. I see. They live in a certain city that has, Baruch Hashem, plenty of money that even if you're renting, even if you're renting a side house, it's still 1500 to $2,000. Meaning, you cannot be homeless living in this place. The cheapest place is almost a couple thousand dollars a month, if not more. I see what their careers are, their owners, entrepreneurs, whatever they are. They're making a living. Sometimes they show their cars and their profiles and the things they have and they tell you about the dinners they go and they go to dinner a few times and you go to lunch and each one of the lunches and the dinners, it's a hundred or two hundred or three hundred. I also live in the world. I don't live in Mars. And then you say, finally, they send a donation, they send you like six dollars. It's like, what do I look at? I mean, are you seriously? Like, why did you bother pressing the buttons? Like, if you're a 15-year-old kid and this is your allowance, I understand, if you're really, really struggling, your $6 is worth to me more than $6 million. No questions asked. We value every penny. And I try my best to say thank you to people every time they send. It doesn't matter what they send. Three, I had one guy send me a dollar a day every day. One guy sends me a dollar a day. Even though PayPal or whatever company takes 40 cents out of every dollar because they take 40 cents a transaction at that point. So it's really, you're not even getting the full dollar. He still gets a thank you letter for every single one. Or he did at the time. It's not about the money. Don't get this wrong. Don't think it's like, oh, if only if you're donating millions are we going to... No, no. But you see that some people, they have Baruch Hashem. They have. They have the house. They have a salary. They're making six figures. They have a house that's half a million plus. They have Baruch Hashem. Now, not, not Trump, but they have. And they send you like $12 or $18. It's like, when I was 12, 13 years old, I gave $12. Like, what's the matter with you? If you're going to give, give. You don't give, don't. It's embarrassing for you, not for me. You're a grown man. You're a grown woman. You're 50 years old. You have a job. You make $150,000 a year. You send $18? What's the matter? What happened? If you don't like it, why are you sending? Do you understand what I'm saying? Like it does, I just don't understand it. I don't understand it sometimes. Like you put it in a stamp. You put it in an envelope. The envelope itself is a dollar. I don't get it. What happened? And that's the thing, is that sometimes people just don't double check. They don't think. Like, oh, listen, I'm going to send chai. You know what? Send me met. Don't send chai, send met. Met is 440. The point is, Abutai, is that a person needs to know, he has to think, he has to think. What am I doing here? Am I just acknowledging that I'm acknowledging? Or am I really contributing because I want to contribute? Am I just saying hello? I could do that with a text message. I could do it with an email. Or am I really, I want to be a partner in whatever this cause is. I want to contribute to something that matters. If it's Torah, if I want to be part of Torah, what can they do with my 
$12, with my $20, with my $50. If that's all you have, like I said, your 50 is worth to me 50 million. But if you have thousands, but you're only going to donate the thousands to places that publicize your name all over the internet, and the places that don't, you're going to give them the 50 cents instead, the change that you found under the couch, then why are you giving it all, at all, Mehmet, at all? Why give it all? What, what do you think is going to happen with the $18? Like the 18000 you gave this year went to a Beknesset and everyone gave you kabod. But the $18, what's that going to do for you? And this is the thing that I, I really want people to ask themselves. I want to ask myself that also. I, I, just, I, I really want to know. Where do you think it's going? Like I had one person tell me, listen, I want to contribute to all of the things that you're working on. We had, I don't know, maybe 15, 20 ideas, 20 different projects that we have. I want to contribute to all of them. I want to have a little bit of all of them. So I'm thinking, well, Hashem, maybe it's going to be 100 to each idea, 1,000 to each idea, $10 to each idea. I don't know. It's something. He wants to contribute to every single one of the projects. As I'm assuming, he calculated in his head that... He's going to have a signal. Each video costs, I don't know, four or $5,000. So he's going to contribute, let's say, 100 bucks for a video, like one of the movies. Uh, the CDs, each time we order CDs, it's fifteen dollars to $25,000 or more. Okay, he's going to co- contribute, I don't know, 100 bucks over here. Uh, Avrech, every time we send money to an Avrech, it's $1,000, $2,000 at a time every month, a few thousand dollars every month. Okay, he's going to contribute, I don't know, a couple hundred dollars for the Avrech. I'm thinking he, like, or she, whatever it was, like put this into his mind. He said before he said, "I'm going to contribute to everything." Wow, the yofi. We need this. Oh, eighteen dollars. I'm looking at him. I was like, "Oh, Hashem, wanted me to have some kapata not today." Why though? Why did you give me the whole letter? Why? Why did you? Why bother saying I want to contribute to everything and send eighteen dollars? Why? Just send $18, say hello, thank you for what you're doing, goodbye. Like, what's the whole story for? And this is, this is what people need to understand, that you cannot just speak like a big guy if you're a little guy. You cannot, you know, you have to, whatever, whatever your heart gives, it's okay, it's all fine. But again, think about it, put some thought behind it. Put some thought behind it. Don't just like give blindly. And don't just not give. Like if you're benefiting out of something, you should give something for it. It's, don't just be one of these people just takes, takes, takes either. And this is the most important part that when it comes to money, that if you love it, you're going to always have a hard time giving it. And if you don't give it, you're no different than the people of Sodom. And that's the problem. In Judaism... We don't have the luxury to do whatever we want. We don't have that luxury because we have a consequence. So this is why when it comes to the laws of tzedakah, it comes to the details of tzedakah, the, the Gemara speaks very harshly about people that are stingy, people that don't value it. So the Gemara in Baba Batra, page 9b, Rav Nachman Bar Yitzrak, Omer, HaKadosh Baruch Hu, sends him people who are deserving of charity so that he will reap his just reward for helping them. Meaning, the people that give, 
Hashem sets it up that they give. Why? In order to give to the right cause, you actually have to have merit. Hashem does not allow just anyone to give to anything. There are some people that they have an endless fortune. They have money, they could burn a million dollars every year or every day and nothing will change in their life. But their charity is they're donating to zoos and sea worlds and, uh, and, and, and saving the, the, the flies and, uh, and the mosquitoes of the world. The, the, they, they have a, uh, a foundation and the U.S. government, they want to check what the horses feel when they fly out of a plane. There's actually a foundation that's $15 million a year. It's spent on this foundation, $15 million a year, to research what do horses feel? How do they behave when they're parachuting from a plane? $15 million is going to this a year. Last time I checked, it was a long time ago, but that's what it was the budget at that time. If you actually see the certain foundations, this money comes from somewhere. It's not just from, it's not just, it's coming from somewhere where people donate to this or save the butterflies foundation. Like someone just decides to donate five or ten million dollars to save butterflies in Africa that he's never going to see. Or this couple had an extra, extra few dollars, decided to donate, I think it was maybe half a million or a million dollars to build a gate, a new gate for the elephant in the zoo in Israel, the Noahide Zoo. They wanted to get her a new gate. So they spent a million dollars on this thing. All these stupid things that this money comes from somewhere. It's not just a figment of our imagination. There are millions and billions of dollars going to these places. In fact, if you do research on non-profit organizations, the big ones, the Red Crosses and Blue Crosses and all these uh, uh, major institutions, statistically speaking, between 90 to 99 cents out of every single dollar does not go to the cause. It actually goes to the people running the organization. Meaning... You just donated a million dollars of hard-earned money that you made in the stock market or in your business or whatever you did. You donated a million dollars. At the very least, 900,000 is not going to save the butterflies. Even the butterfly is not benefiting out of it. Or the horse. Who is it going to? The CEO, his friends, the contractors, the, the, the toilet paper, all that stuff. So the Gemara here, Baba Batra says... That Hashem, HaKadosh Baruch Hu, He sends people that are deserving of charity. Meaning, it's not just charity. You Just because you have money, you're going to have opportunities. No. Just like there's a Bedin in Shamayim that decides whether you're going to get hurt from the pin and the needle. There's also a Bedin in Shamayim that decides if your dollar is going to go to the Red Cross and to the toilet paper over there, or it's going to go to save Jews. Or it's going to go to publicized Torah. Or it's going to go to a cause that's going to save real lives. There's a decision in Shemaim. There's a bed in Shemaim sits. Okay, he's going to donate $500 today. What are you going to be? What is it going to be? Oh, toilet paper. Toilet paper. Why? He, uh, he did some mitzvot. What mitzvot? He stole the $500. No mitzvot. None of the mitzvot count. The $500 is stolen. $500 goes to toilet paper. 
Yeah, but where does toilet paper? Oh, make him, make him think that it's going to some rabbi. Make him think that it's going to some rabbi. Put a Baba comes to town, you give him $500. So he thinks he just gave it to something good. In reality, he went to toilet paper. I had one time a person tell me a story. Baba shook me up. He, God bless him, was running an underground casino. And uh, one day he sees a few of these religious guys come to the underground casino. Now he doesn't really care. He wasn't religious at the time. And uh, he doesn't really care who his customers are. It could be religious Jews. It could be Nazis. It could be... Uh, it doesn't make a difference. They have, their money is as green as anything else. It not make a difference. It's a casino. It's not a social club for, uh, for uh, you know, uh, public speakers about... Uh, you know, about Torah or anything. So he sees they're playing, they're playing, they're playing. All of a sudden, the couple, of, one of the religious Jews, Shem Achem, loses his money. Loses whatever he had on the table. So he starts going into his pocket and he starts opening envelopes. What envelopes? Donations that people gave him. Starts opening the envelopes and takes out the checks and the cash. Goes, okay, cash these in. The guy running the club told me I wanted to vomit. I wasn't religious, but at that point, I hated him. Because I know, I, he says, I donate some money here and there, not to a big donator, but I know whoever donated him definitely didn't donate him the money to go play cards with it in my club. That kicked him out. That's Chilu Hashem. That's Chilu Hashem. Now the person that donated that money didn't know that that's where the money is going to go to. It's going to go to poker chips. But he deserves it, apparently. Why? <laughs> Only Shemaim they know, but apparently there was a Bedin in Shemaim that decided, yeah, yeah, you're going to give it to some rabbi, and that rabbi is going to go play poker with it. So it's not just having the money to give. It's also having the schut, that the money will arrive where it's supposed to, it's actually going to earn you some, some good. So the Gemara continues. It says, Rabbi Yoshua ben Levi says, Anyone who's accustomed to performing acts of charity merits blessing and he will have Sons who are masters of wisdom, masters of wealth, and masters of Agadah. The Gemara explains masters of wisdom as it is written. He who pursues charity and mercy finds life. Life meaning Olam Abba. So there's a significance to actually having, giving, to giving, if it ends in the right place. Now, in the same Gemara, it says that anyone who escapes giving, let's say, opportunity arises, a person that needs money, an opportunity comes, that they come to him, they're asking for money, and they're asking people in the shul for money, they're asking in the shul for money, and he slips through the back, he's out of there. He doesn't want to give, don't ask me, don't embarrass me, don't put me on the spot, I'm out of here, I gotta go, I'm busy, I'm do 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 he runs away from charity. 
The Gemara says a person that escapes giving tzedakah is no different than an idol worshiper. Again, a person that escapes giving tzedakah, like he closes his eye, opportunity arose, somebody needs, you have, and you pretend like you don't have, or you pretend like you're busy, or you run away, whatever it is. Bottom line is you were able to give and you choose not to. Gemara says you're no different than an idol worshiper. Why no different? What does one thing have to do with the other? You're cheap. Simply said, you're cheap. Why an idol worshiper? Okay, being cheap is not one of the Ten Commandments. Why an idol worshiper is one of the Ten Commandments? It's a problem. Having an idol is a problem. Cheap. I didn't think being cheap is a problem. It says if you have and you don't give, you're escaping, that means that you love the money to the point that you've turned it to Avodah Zarah. You are officially an idol worshiper. Being cheap for a Jew is not like being cheap for a non-Jew. You get huge reward for giving, but there's also consequences for not. And this is one of the most shocking things about tzedakah and giving is that there is, it's not just the reward that Hashem wants to give you, it's also the punishment that He doesn't want to give you. So there was always arguments between this kofel called Tonus Rofus and Rabbi Akiva. Tonus Rofus would constantly ask these difficult questions and Rabbi Akiva would respond to him. So the Gemara in Baba Batra, page 10a, there's a debate between them. Tonus Rofus says to Rabbi Akiva, he says, if your God loves the poor people, why didn't he feed him himself? Why didn't he feed him himself? He says, what is it like? It's like a king of flesh and blood that has a uh, has uh, put his son in prison and when someone comes to feed him, he gets mad at him, he gets punished. So Rabbi Akiva says, no, it's not that, it's not that. The reason why Hashem doesn't feed the poor is simply because He's trying to save us from Gehenom. It's not that He's not feeding His children because He doesn't want to feed His children. He's going to feed them. Now, David Amelech writes it in Teilim. You read it in Berkat Amazon. I've been young, I've been old, and I've never seen a righteous person starve. Of course, there's hunger, but there's not starvation and death. Of course, there's difficulty, but very rarely is there there's a decree that a righteous person is going to die from starvation. Very rare. So, Rabbi Akiva says to Tonus Rofus, he says, no, what you're not understanding is that Hashem is doing us chesed. He's doing us kindness. We've made many sins. So in order for us to be saved from the judgment of Gainom, Hashem gives us the opportunity to give charity, to give tzedakah. So Tonus Ovo says to Rabbi Akiva, says, on the contrary, it's this charity, if you're actually giving charity, that's actually condemning to you Jewish people. Why? If there was a king, and like I said, the king got mad at his son, got mad at his uh, slave, Got out of his slave, and he threw the slave in prison. 
and he ordered that nobody's going to feed this slave, and no one's going to give him any drink, and somebody went against the king and gave him food and drink. Don't you think the king is going to be upset about it? As it says, and he even mentions verses, like this Tonus Office was not just uh, the, the heretics of today that don't know right, don't know left. The heretics of, of years ago, they knew Torah. They just chose to be heretics. Even uses a verse in the Torah, Leviticus 25.55. says, for the, for, for the children of Israel are slaves to me. He says, look, you children of Israel are slaves. So if the king put the slave and, in prison and said, don't feed the slave, and you fed the slave, he's going to be mad at you too. That's going to be a judgment for you to go to Gainom. So Abiy Akiva responds to me, he says, no, no, no. I'll, I'll actually explain from your story why you're wrong. Because let's say there's a king of flesh and blood that gets upset with his son and puts him in prison and orders that no one should feed his son or even give him a drink. And a person goes ahead and feeds him and gives him drinks. And after a while, once the king comes down, he starts thinking about his son, but he says, ah, my son's probably dead. He hasn't eaten in six months, and a year, and two years. And he starts crying over his son that he hasn't seen, and now he pretty much figures he's dead. But then the person that gave him the drink and, and, and the food, he said, no, 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 your, your highness, I'm sorry, I, I didn't listen to you because I knew he was your son, and I gave him some food, and I gave him some drink, and he's alive, and he's well, and he's over here. Do you think the king is going to punish him or actually give that person an extra reward for saving his son? Because as it is written in the book of Deuteronomy, you are sons of the Lord your God. Not just slaves, but sons too. So Tonus Ofu says, Ah, so you're called, so the sons are also called slaves. When, how does it work? When you're following what your God says, you're called sons. When you don't, you're called slaves. So here we see that the significance of tzedakah is not just because of the person involved, but also the person that, the giver, the taker, the one that's watching it, Hashem runs the world with precision. And Rabbi Yeshua, son of Rabbi Shalom, taught that just as a person's entire livelihood is decided on Rosh Hashanah, as we mentioned in Gemara Masechet Beitza and also Masechet Rosh Hashanah, God issues His judgment for the entire year that way, so too are a person's monetary losses. Just like His income is decided on Rosh Hashanah, so is his losses. If one merits, the following verses apply to him, you shall share your bread with the hungry. If not, you shall bring the poor that are cast out to your house. So, in essence, meaning, if a person gives zakah, that can turn the decision from loss to profit. If the person doesn't give zakah, then Hashem says, listen, you're not really a good partner. I gave you 100% of the money in order for you to give 10 to 20% of it to my Torah, to my children, to the widows, to the orphans, to the converts, to publicize my Torah. You're not a good partner, so this year I'm just going to take it back. 
That's the deal. And the security that people have today about how, the money they made in the market in recent years and how it's literally one up 500% since the crash of 2008. There's been money made from literally nothing. And people have made a fortune out of it. And now they feel that they're very, very secure. People feel like reality, they're richer than ever as far as money is concerned. And it's very dangerous. It's a very dangerous place to be because when a person thinks that they're the ones that made the money, their thought, their idea, their luck, their fortune, their anything, this by itself is a reason for Hashem to take everything. Now most people that made a lot of money think exactly like I did. It's impossible to lose that kind of money. It's impossible. When you make a million bucks, you know you can lose it. When you make 10 or 20, you figure, listen, even if I lose, I'm not going to lose all of it. I'll lose half. When you make 50, 100, you're like, I'm never going to be broke again. But I can tell you that there is a guy that was at one point the fifth richest man in the world, maybe number four. I think his name is Ike Batista from Brazil. He skyrocketed from nowhere and became literally one of the fifth richest man in the world, maybe number four, 40, 50 billion dollars. In a single year, in a single year, he lost everything. They repossessed his cars, they repossessed his boats, they repossessed his companies, everything, everything. All the companies he owned went down 100%, nothing, zero. Like, mamash, a plague. If he can lose $50 billion, you can use the 50000 and the $50 million and the 50 everything. Why? Because number one, Hashem has made much bigger people than him lose everything. Number two, you're definitely not smarter than him. He was a genius too. Wasn't some guy that was lucky in, a, in a, some idiot that won the lotto. He's a smart guy. You have to be smart to that extent to make that kind of money. The point is that today... People simply do not understand that if they have more than they need and they're not giving, they're literally playing with fire. Because sometimes Hashem gets you to a point where He says, I'm going to give you one last chance. So I'm going to give you all the opportunities in the world to buy your life all over again. Why? I'm going to give you a single tool. Torah you have all the time, it's free. So the ability to learn Torah, you don't need money for that. But the ability to give that can give you more life, more time, more so on, not everybody has that opportunity. Now sometimes Hashem gives a person a lot more than what they need. Some people it's 50,000 or 100,000. Some people it's 50 million. If you would view the money the right way, you could use that money to literally get yourself into Gan Eden. If not, that very money will be used to burn you in Gainum. It's all based on the perspective of a person. It's all literally based on the perspective of a person. If you love it, you're never going to have enough of it. And you're going to have a very, very hard time giving it. But if you address it and you look at it the right way, then you're not going to have that same problem. It's not easy. Trust me, it's much easier to give a check for fifty or $500 than to give a check for uh, 5000 or 50000 or 100000 doesn't matter how much money you have, it's always hard to give big checks. 
But the point is that if Hashem already blessed you, you should understand that He's doing it for a reason. And the parasha that we read, it says, Im telechu, It says, If you fulfill my commandments and my decrees. In the book of Psalms, chapter 106, verse 3, it says, David HaMelech says, Praiseworthy is the person that keeps these decrees. How do we know he's keeping these decrees to the fullest? Someone that's looking for opportunities to do tzedakah. He's not just doing tzedakah. He's not just giving once a week or once a month. or once. He's looking for opportunities. He says, listen, I got this. I don't really need all of it. I paid my mortgage. I paid my car. I paid this. I paid this. I don't need all of this. But you know what? He does. You know what? She does. You know what? They do. This organization. He's looking for tzedakah. Bechol Ed, every time, all the time. He's constantly looking for opportunities. Why? That's what Hashem is giving you the money for. The 10 or 20%, the maaser or the chamushit, all of that stuff, that was a guideline you should abide by, but also understand that Judaism is the only religion that actually tells you you can't give everything. You have to give everything with certain, uh, there has to be a method. The Gemaraim Maseret Ketubot, page 67, specifically teaches that a person is forbidden to be extreme when it comes to charity to the point of making themselves poor. You're not allowed to make yourself poor. If you made a uh, hundred thousand or a million dollars or whatever you made, you can't say, okay, here's everything, I'm going to go collect uh, change in the streets now. You're not allowed to do such things. The most you're allowed to give is 20% if you are of normal value, I mean, of normal net worth. Let's, I don't know, if you're worth a million dollars, you give $200,000. That's the most you can give as far as charity for that time. But if you're worth a fifty, a hundred million, then you can give 99% of your money. Why? Because you don't, no one needs a hundred million dollars and no one needs $20 million either. The point being is that we have rules in the Torah for all of this. Now, Rav Galinsky, Alava Shalom, in his book, in his bio, he tells a lot of amazing stories. And one of them is Mamash Chazdeh Hashem of how Hashem turns the things around and shows you how you're the only one that benefits out of tzedakah, not the beneficiary. Beneficiary is going to get anyway. You don't run the world with your tzedakah. When you give, you're actually taking. Of Galinsky says, you know, he suffered a lot in his life and one of the times they sent him to um, Siberia. Siberia, these Russians, that terrorists and communists over there would send the Jews to Siberia. People that went in there, they never left. They died. Once in a while, people survived. They took Rav Galinsky and many of his uh, yeshiva over there. All of them went there. Freezing cold, people don't have uh, anything, any, any, any extra clothing, any anything. They barely feed them, and they make them work worse than slaves. Anyway, one time they would eat, what was their food? After slaving outside in the freezing cold, they'd give them soup with nothing in it, maybe a, one vegetable. Now each one of these people was starving, just worked all day, you're like cold, you're half dead, you're 
literally dying, the best thing of the day is that you could finally eat anything so you could survive another day. And he said the main thing that kept us going, all the Tamidech and Chamim, all the people that learned Torah, all the people that had real Yerat Shammai, what they do, they teach Musar to each other. What do you mean? But you're lifting stones and wood and uh, and uh, all these, your slaves in the middle of the snow, it's uh, 50 degrees below zero. What Musar? Well, you need the Musar, you're suffering. That was the fire that kept us going. So we'd stop, we'd take a break, Five minutes? Okay, give me chidush. How are you serving Hashem better here? And each person had to give a chidush. Five minutes, they had to go around. How are they serving Hashem? Through slavery. Through cold, through freezing. How did you do today? Well, today I thought about him. When I was picking up the wood, I said, Thank you for giving me the strength to pick up the wood today. Instead of us saying, why are you giving me the wood? Why are you so cold? I jacket it. I need a new jacket. This one has a stain on it. So Rav Galinsky, Shalom, says one time, we got back to the, uh, to the, to the barracks and they were, they were giving the food and I got the soup. And I saw my soup and I was starving. And then I saw the guy next to me, somebody bumped into him, all of the soup went on the floor. They're not giving you another soup. A whole soup went on the floor, that's it. No food. And I saw this guy was gonna die. He wasn't he wasn't gonna make it. He had the soup, he was gonna he had the soup. Soup's on the floor, no soup, they're not gonna give him a soup. He's trying to lick it off the floor, nothing. Soup's gone. Soup's gone, no food, no nothing. Now I'm starving and I start to I want to eat my soup and I can't take it. I don't know what to do. I can't take it. I see him. And I'm suffering, still looking at him. I decide to give him my soup. This by itself is already enough of a story. Fast forward. They made it out of Siberia. They made it out of their life. War was over. They all went back to their life. Of Galinsky, Allah Shalom, was one of the people that exposed the Zionists and how anti-Torah they were. But the Zionists, Imach Shimam, were their main cause was to destroy the Torah. Some of the stories that have been uncovered in recent years of what the so-called Zionistic founders of modern Israel, some of the stories that you have, that you find from them, literally make them worse than some Nazis. They would take Yemenite Jewish babies and sell them to the Goim switch babies on parents, all types of evil, evil things. If you were Sephardic, they didn't accept you. There was a boat full of Sephardic Jews that was supposed to come. They say rejected it. Everyone died. All types of evil things they did. No, Ben-Gurion, Ben-Gurion. What Ben-Gurion was not lying. Just see what the guy did. But anyway, if we fast forward and we actually see that what really happened of Galinsky said these people, there was, a, there was a Knesset, there was a thing where they would literally, they would take kids from the camps and from religious families and they would bring them to the kibbutzim. Like a new concentration camp. They went from Germany, now they're in Israel. So one time of Galinsky went on a mission to go and break into one of these camps to free some kids, some Jewish kids. 
to get them back home, to get them to stay religious. He goes in, he gets caught. Now, Galinsky, I'm sure you don't know, if you do, you're even more amazed at the story. He's this big. Literally, he was this big. Tiny, tiny little person. He's four feet tall. Maybe less. But his voice and his Torah and his power, you would think that the incredible Hulk is like a little baby next to him. He would, when he would give a shield to I, would stand on top of a table. Thousands of people would be unbelievable. You read his book, it's like you, you cry, you cry, thinking this. You're thinking this is a giant. This is like uh, Moshe Rabbeinu. This person must be the size of a building. Anyway, he gets caught, and he knows. Okay, this is the end of my life. Then these people weren't like uh, you know nice about it. You're trying to do, to go and undermine what they're doing. And especially, he said, me being so little, I'm not surviving. The, I'm not surviving a day. I survived Siberia. I'm not surviving the Zionists. Anyway, they catch him, and they're gonna take care of business. Before they do, they call their leader. The leader comes into the room, looks at him. Rav Galinsky looks at him back. They see each other. The leader tells everybody, get out. And they hug each other. Why? He says, you saved my life. You gave me the soup. You saved my life. You gave me the soup. But what are you doing here? He says, I'm trying to free my kids here. These are my kids. These are my sons. He goes, take the kids. Get out of here. Soup. 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 You understand? That's the guys for you. Saves your life. Soup. What soup? Imagine. The stories that you hear about Am Yisrael get better and better with every generation. You see some of the amazing difficulties they overcame. The one common characteristic that you see about all of these tzaddikim is that they had the perfect perspective on money. First and foremost, this type of attitude of what's mine is mine and yours is yours was as far removed from them as Sodom is from us. There's no such thing. Quite the opposite. Some people have the mentality that what's theirs is Yours and what yours is theirs. The Mishnah says such people are ignorant people. They're unlearned people. This is the type of people that are gluttons. They just want to take your stuff and they say they start going into your food, into your house, into your car, into your everything that you have. It's like, hey, hey I don't go into your house. And they're like, hey, you can go. They know they don't have anything in their house though. They ate everything in their house. They're going into your house. Like little cockroaches that they go into different people's houses and collect. They have no shame, no nothing. He says, this, such, this person is an unlearned person. He hasn't learned manners. He hasn't learned anything. He has nothing of substance in the world. Now, the 
question is, what is this unlearned person? What's the uh, what's the significance of it? We say Amalef, the term Amalef, many times. So Sefer Musa points out that the desire to derive benefit from other people, by itself, just by nature, if you're looking to benefit from other people, that by itself is a deficiency in your character. If you're looking at every person as if he's a customer, as if he's a fish, as if he's a something that you can get something out of, by itself, by nature, that's already a character flaw in you. Why? You look, you have the wrong perspective of people. They're people, they're not customers. They're people, they're not money signs. And this can lead a person to covet the wealth of other people to the point of obsession. Now most people didn't think that the first one, the first part applies to them. They don't think that they have a character flaw of looking to benefit from other people. But everyone can relate to the second part, which is coveting other people's wealth. Why? Because 9 out of 10 conversations in today's world is other people's money. People love to talk about celebrities' money, superstars' money, governors' money, presidents' money, his wife's money, this money, that money. People love to talk about other people's money. And unfortunately, this is the lowest form of conversation. It's completely meaningless and it's a sin. Meaningless that nothing good will ever come out of you talking about other people's money. Nothing will ever come out of it. That person is never going to send you a letter in the mail saying, by the way, thanks for talking about my money on Tuesday. Here's a check. We'll share a little bit. A person is never paying you your bills because you know his salary. He's never sending you a check because he sent somebody else a check. Because over there he bought a car. You usually had a conversation about his money. In fact, he dislikes you because you're talking about his money. I can tell you from personal experience, one of the most detestable things that I had to experience when I had money was that people constantly counted my money. It's the most annoying thing in the world that people ask you, how much money did you make? How much money did you make? How much money did you make? What do you care? I'm not paying your bills. And if I am, you're not on the level to ask me how much money I made. Just be quiet and just collect a check. Meaning if you're my employee, I'm paying your bills. Leave me alone. What are you asking my money? Go back to work. What do you care how much money I made? What difference is it to you? It's, 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 it's really obnoxious when people count your money because first of all, by nature, if you're a Jew, you already realize it's Ainara. They're not counting your money because they wish you well. They're counting your money because they want it and they think they, they deserve it and not you. That's number one. Number two, even more so, that they're counting your money and they start thinking that you're doing this and you're doing that and they're evaluating, they're judging you and how you're doing and what you're doing and it's very, very annoying. It's like you feel like you're a fish in a fish tank. Everybody's like, you know, people you know, click on, on, on a fish tank just to play with the fish. You feel like you're the fish. Oh, look, do, 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 look, he bought a car. Do, 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 do. Look, he bought a stock. Do, 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 do. Look, he bought a this. Look, do, do, do. Leave me alone. Go away. Go back to work. Go make your own money. How much does this cost you? What difference do you have? How much it cost me? Are you going to buy it? No, I can't afford it. So what difference does it make you how much it was? 
So, when you talk about other people's money, it's a problem. Number one, it's detestable to the people that you're talking about their money. Number two, you're wasting your time completely. It's a complete waste of time. And three, it could only lead you to sin. The sin is, you're not allowed to covet. You're not allowed to be jealous of other people. A person that's jealous, that dies jealous without doing tshuva, does not get revived with the dead. When the dead get resurrected, after Mashiach comes, 40 years after Mashiach comes, the resurrection of the dead, someone that died a jealous person does not get resurrected. It's to that extent, it's detestable to Hashem, to that extent, if you are a jealous person, you're, excuse me, counting other people's money. Oh, he lives in a $10 million apartment. Oh, he drives a Lamborghini. Oh, he has a chopper. Oh, he bought this stock at one and it's now a million. Oh, he married this girl. Oh, he married that girl. If you're jealous of other people, Hashem will bring the Mashiach. Everything is going to happen. Resurrection of the dead. You're staying inside, in the sand, with the worms, in the maggots. Why? Because jealousy is a form of kfirah. Jealousy is a form of heresy. Because in essence, when you're jealous of another person, what you're saying to Hashem is, you should have given it to me and not him. As if you're saying that Hashem, chas v'shalom, made a mistake. Hashem doesn't make mistakes. If he made mistakes, he wouldn't be Hashem. A God that makes mistakes is not God. So if you're thinking that somebody has more than you and you should have gotten it, that means you're saying that God made a mistake. God doesn't make mistakes. You're making a mistake. It's a big mistake. So when you're looking at other people's houses, cars, boats, girlfriends, boyfriends, children, watches, anything, you have a serious problem. It's also why, technically, it's a very difficult, very, very difficult to be in the business world today and not only have to watch your eyes when it comes to seeing the opposite sex, but also watch your eyes when you're seeing somebody have something that you want. Cars, bracelets, watches, rings, diamonds, money, fame, fortune, all that stuff. You're not allowed to be jealous. It'll destroy you. To the point where you could become a criminal. How so? A person that thinks, Sheli shelcha v'shelcha sheli, Mine is yours, and yours is mine. Is a person that, in essence, says, you could take whatever I have because even I don't value what I have. In essence, what you're saying, what you have is worthless. That's why you don't want it. Hey, take it. But you want his stuff. You want his stuff. When you're so focused about his stuff, you can become obsessed. And you can develop something that I call false ambition. Some people have something called false ambition. I had a few of them work for me. And their focus of life is making money and the outcome of it. Oh yeah, why do you want money? Oh, I want to get a boat. I want to get a car. I'm going to get a house. $10 million, $20 million, $100 million. They talk about all these big numbers. It's like, you haven't gotten the job yet, buddy. Your last job, it was a bagel's house and uh, you made 200 bucks a week. Relax with a $10 million house. 
but they start with this mentality that they want to go not to work because they want to work, but work because they want stuff like him. Now, unfortunately, when you have that type of obsession, you can get to a point where that whole ambition is flawed. And now you realize that making money like him, whoever that him is or her is, is not possible for you. They have a certain talent, you don't. They've spent an extra amount of time, you're not willing to spend. It took them 20, 30 years to make that money, you're here only for two weeks, but you want the money now. They have a special skill, they have somebody gift them the money, Whatever it is, you're on, you don't have the same opportunities, but nonetheless, you view it as it's a wrong in the world that you don't have it. That's why a lot of people, like for example, a lot of people want to become rappers or, or, or singers. They want to go to these shows and they want to become singers and rappers, not because they care so much about singing and rapping and all that stuff. They don't care about the music aspect of it. Because if you just listen to their lyrics, you understand what they care about. What do they care about? Girls, cars, Houses, fame, fortune, flash. Oh, look at me. And they act like they just came out of the hood even though their father is a normal blue-collar guy. It's like ridiculous. You see this. I'm, I'm not, talking about, not talking about people that are not Jewish. I'm talking about Jewish kids. Jewish kids acting like they're Dr. Dre. If you don't know who Dr. Dre is, Chazak Baruch. I know from the book. <laughs> but the point is, they, they think that they're DMX. You see this little Jewish kid this Bukharian kid, this little Ashkenazi kid, this little Litvish kid over here coming, he's acting like he's DMX. And he starts rhyming things and he thinks, oh yeah, I'm like Eminem. And I'm, well, what are you doing? This is what you came to the world? Do you look at yourself in the mirror? What's the matter with you? You're not Eminem and you're not his uh, shoe even and you're not Dr. Dre. Go get a regular job and get your life together. Enough with this nonsense. And people encourage them, yeah, yeah, that thing is dope, man. That thing was hot. What hot? Hot. You should put it in a fire and burn it and never look at it again. What hot? He wasted his parents $20,000 renting a, a recording studio. What do you think? What are you thinking? At the best case scenario, you make it and you actually enter that life, you're guaranteed getting home. Meaning, even if you succeed, you succeed to be this M&M. You succeed to be 50 Cent. You succeed to be the next DMX. You succeed. You're guaranteed Gainom forever. Why? Prostitution, drugs, Chilul Shabbat. You're guaranteed Gainom forever. Guaranteed. There's no end to your Gainom. So best case scenario, yo, wow. Worst case scenario, you chased your tail for 15 years thinking you're going to be the next big hit and you never get a real job. You live in your parents' house for 25 years. You never get married. You always feel like uh, you know your chance was taking, and you missed an opportunity, and you live in a life that's unrealistic, and you lose your life. So, best or worst, you're a loser. Enough. Enough supporting these kids with these things that they say they want to be. We are not goyim. Every day you say, Baruch Shelo Asani Goy. You're not supposed to be 50 cent. That's not what Hashem brought the Jew to the world. He didn't bring the Jew to be 50 cent. He didn't bring you to be a rapper. He brought you to be a Jew. 
And this is the thing, this is the confusion that people have. Why? Oh no, okay, you know what? I'll make religious songs. I'll make religious songs. Okay, look at the people that succeeded in the religious song business. They didn't become so religious anymore. They didn't stay so religious anymore. They started, you know, because big money is not usually just a religious community. It's a, usually it's the eh -eh community. Why? Because you want to have the men and the women and they dance together. And now you've organized an event like this uh, Elbaz guy that's very popular and people dance together. The men and the women dance together. It's Giloy Arayot. The whole event is on your head that everyone made a sex crime. It's on your head. Best case scenario, you're going to gain them forever. So people just simply don't take this to account. There's a deen, there's a dayan. There's a consequence for our actions. Stop going into careers that at the best case scenario will make you a rasha. At the worst case scenario, you're a loser. Pick a regular job. Go work at a regular job. I don't work at an airport. Work at UPS. Go deliver pizza for all I care. Be a broker. Be a lawyer. Or at least an honest one if it's possible. Do something that's a normal thing. Stop trying to be something that you're not. Because the reality is, is that when a person has this focus on money, they start going drifting to places of never, never land. And I remember having a few guys that worked for me and they had this false ambition, false ambition syndrome. And they only focused on the money, focused on the money, focused on the money, and they always forgot to work though. So they would always focus on like this one really, really big client. One really, really big prospect, let me say, not client. It was never a client. It was never ever a client. They always focus on one big prospect that was a zillionaire that was going to save everything and make him a millionaire overnight. I'm like, yeah, but what about paying the bills? No, no, no. I'm going to get that one guy. I'm going to catch up. I'm like, okay, it's been six months. No, no, I'm going to get that one guy. Okay, it's been 12 months. How much? How much? How much time? Eventually, you have to fire them because they're a complete waste of life. They're the worst employees in the world. They're always late. They're always lazy. They always sell you these dreams of what they're eventually going to make. I'm going to get this. When I get this, it's going to happen. And all these fake stories that's in their mind. In their mind, it's real. But it's complete nonsense. And eventually, it gets to a point where these people break. And a couple of the people that I fired ended up going into wherever they went to. But one specific guy, uh, one specific guy after I fired him, he went to a couple of other places and then he made a few bucks over there. But that wasn't enough for him because he was—he had to be. You know, you can't be uh, Shaquille O'Neal wealth just making ends meet. So what did he do? He decided to start a Ponzi scheme. Started a Ponzi scheme. He wasn't smart enough to even run it well. And he ended up going to jail and he's still in jail right now. The other few ended up, you know, wasting their life continuing to chase their false dreams. Some of them became criminals in one aspect, others just became losers. But the point is, Rabotai, this all has to do with simply viewing material, viewing money inappropriately. Just thinking that you're supposed to have a lot more than what you do. This is a flawed perspective at life. Whatever you have is exactly what Hashem wants you to have. It's exactly what Hashem decreed for you to have. Thinking anything otherwise is a mistake. So because we're out of time at this point, I think we're running already late, we'll finish the rest of the Mishnah Bezat Hashem next week. 
But this is enough for us to chew on. This is enough for us to chew on that at least at this point we know what to stay away from. If one of these things applies to you, then you know, okay, this is what I have to take home. I have to stop thinking about other people's money. I have to stop thinking I'm going to be an NBA player. I have to stop thinking I'm going to do all these different things that are not really suitable for someone that's trying to be a righteous Jew. Melee, if your if your ideal uh, uh, opportunity in life is to be the the best guy you can be, then okay, I don't know. Maybe you can be Shaquille O'Neal. What can I tell you? I don't know. Maybe he is a good. I don't know. But for a Jew, this is not appropriate jobs. You have to understand, as a Jew, your job is part of your life. It's not your life. Your job, your career, your money, your asset, all of those things, it's part of life. Just like eating is. Just like drinking is. Just like marriage is. Just like having kids is. It's part of life. It's not your life. So that part can change over time. Today you could be a UPS driver. In 10 years from now you could be, I don't know, a business owner of some kind. In 20 years from now you could go back to being a UPS driver. In 30 years from now you have, again, oh, you start a new business. It's a part of life that changes like you change underwear. It's not something, you don't, it's not stuck at whatever it is. But just make sure wherever you're at, it's honest, it's kosher, and it's helping you be a better Jew. Or at the very least, not refraining you from being one. And if you're not Jewish, same aspect goes to you. It's helping you become a better servant of Hashem. And not refraining you from being one. If your job requires you to do things that are against the seven Noahide laws, the ethical laws that are even beyond the seven, then obviously you're not allowed to do it. You don't need to ask me. You know, everyone knows right and wrong. Everyone knows. Hashem put a Hashem on you, you know right and wrong. You could always double check, but everyone knows the basics of what's right and wrong. So the key is, Rabotai, today we learned the first two character types that we must stay away from. We must stay away from this mentality of being selfish and whatever is mine is mine, whatever is yours is yours, or tree, or being this mentality where no, whatever I have is insignificant. I'll just you could have it. I want yours. Looking at other people's backyard, looking at the other side of the of the, of the grass, that's an unhealthy, unhealthy mentality. Any questions? The Sabbath Hashem will continue next week. Uh, more Mishnah, more stuff, Bezod Hashem. Bauch Adonai Leolam. Amen ve Amen.